guys. Welcome back to another edition of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. We're on episode 12, and I'm your host, Ray Russell. Joining me once more, Steve Ekstad. Steve, what's shaking? Uh, not a whole lot, man. Living the dream. I can't. I wish I could say the same. Everything I've had to do tonight is definitely not a dream, but it is what it is. And we are where we are, and where we are here on the show is February of 1996. Wow, we've come a long way in such a short period of time. It's nice to be able to do these one-hour programs. It's uh, making things move a little faster here. Two episodes a week right now, at least until later on in the summer months uh, when WCW goes two hours. But for right now, we're in February, 1996. And uh, are you ready to roll, Steve? I'm ready to go. All right, sounds good, guys. Welcome back to Monday Warfare. It's been a little bit for us, but uh, we're getting these things right back out and on time. Monday Warfare. Kicking off here with WCW Monday Nitro for February 5th, 1996 in Lakeland, Florida. In front of 7,000 fans, only 4,000 paid. And before we get going, just a little bit of news, WCW news, mind you. Sherry Martell was fired on this date, February 5th here at this show, prior to the show. On this live Nitro, she was scheduled to do an angle where she was going to destroy Colonel Rob Parker's car with a baseball bat but it's reported that she was in no condition to do so. DeMeltz reports Sherry has been on thin ice since missing her plane trip for the Japanese show back in November. And of course, you know, we had that issue with Sherry Medusa on the last episode. I'm not really sure if Sherry went and filed a complaint with the higher-ups as far as Medusa dumping her on her head, but it seems like Sherry's got some um, substance abuse issues, which is pretty common knowledge, and it's uh, obviously Eric Bischoff's had enough at this point. Yeah, I can't say I blame him. Uh, she looked pretty rough at the clash, and if she's consistently doing this. It's time to suffer the consequences for your actions. It's unfortunate because this is pretty much it outside of that one-off that she had with WWE uh, with the Sean Marty stuff or Kurt Angle stuff. Um, right. Other than that, like she's disappeared. Uh, she looked great at the Hall of Fame. I know she said she had real bad back issues and some issues that she really couldn't get under control, so she used the pills and things like that to cover for it, which is unfortunate, but... Uh, it is what it is. In other news, just real quick, in a, another uh, incident of Scheme Gene being Scheme Gene, Gene Okerlund goes on his 900 number WCW hotline and makes a claim that King Curtis Iakea, a.k.a. the master from the Dungeon of Doom who has now been let go from WCW, he would soon be coming in to the WWF to form a heel group called the Tunnel of Doom. Of course, this is all fabricated by Mean Gene. In fact, Vince McMahon called that a total fabrication on his part when, when questioned about that. So Scheme Gene just spreading more rumors, doing the Scheme Gene thing that WWF's really giving him shit about, and he's continuing to prove their point here. I don't really care what Gene Okerlund does. People are buying it, so why not use it? I mean, if you're making money off of it, do it. I don't care. I'm not big on the <laughs> If you don't know shade. it's a work by now. Yeah, but the you're shadiness, not, to, not. to report lies. I mean, to, it, it's one thing to <laughs> report things that are truths or, or goes along with your storylines, but to report total fabrications, not a big thing on that. I mean, that is you're ripping the, the people off. If you're stupid well, enough to call, everybody I mean, I knows guess, it's a work by now. Uh, well, not everything's, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious, uh, get more into that with you. I'm really curious uh, your mindset on that. I don't really know who knows what's a work and what's not a work on a hotline. Here back in, in this era. I mean, if he's reporting something, I mean, he's also reporting Diesel and, and, and Razor Ramon are coming in. Do we take that as a work? I mean, basically at this point, you're you're saying you shouldn't you shouldn't call the hotline for anything. Not that I ever did, but I. I, I mean, it, I never did. I never. I was never enticed. I, it, no, nothing ever intrigued are, me. Don't, don't, I can't think off the top of my head one time they ever drew me in to, to want to call the hotline for anything. 
yeah, I don't, I didn't care about it. So, I mean, obviously it was big money for him because he promotes the shit out of it and people are calling. So that's on them, man. <laughs> I think at the, at the end of the day, you realize it's fake. Wrestling's fake in the grand scheme of things. So if you don't, if you look at it as in that aspect, everything, you have to take everything with a grain of salt and not necessarily believe anything because you don't even, you don't, you just don't know. Like, am I being worked here? Is it real? Is it fake? I don't know. So right. why even, I wouldn't spend any more, more money than I already have to do such as pay-per-views. Maybe their publications, I would see the merchandise if I wanted to like action figures and stuff. But other than that, if you, if I'm calling somebody to get some stories, whatever happens to you happens to you. I, I'm not doing it. Well, Scheme Gene made a small fortune on it anyway, that's for certain. And I, I just I feel like he deserves he gets what he gets here from the Scheme Gene character over in the WWF. At least they're they're poking fun at it and it's fairly accurate as to what he's doing because he's getting a large, large percentage of this hotline money. As we kick off Nitro here, Pepe this week dressed as Raggedy Ann, I believe. And it's to the ring for a very interesting match. It's WCW champion Macho Man Randy Savage with woman and Miss Elizabeth in his corner taking on Chris Benoit really intriguing match on paper anyway and benoit dominates the entire match even landing his patented diving headbutt at one point and instead of macho man hitting the deck hard eric bischoff has a new line as macho man eats the post bischoff says he bites hard into the ring post so eric bischoff still coming up with the new lines here trying to beat out mcmahon for uh talentless <laughs> on play-by-play anyway and woman Jumps up onto the apron while Benoit backdrops Savage to the floor. Remember, Woman is currently with the Macho Man. So you have to wonder if she meant for that to happen. Chris Benoit winds up missing a nasty-looking suicide dive and splat right on the floor outside. I don't care if the mats are there or not. That was a nasty bump, Steve. Oh, yeah, that's pretty pretty brutal. It was like a splat. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, he ate it pretty good there. Back inside, Randy Savage lands the flying elbow drop. It seems to be over, but Ric Flair... He shows up at ringside, and he gets the attention of Savage as Flair goes after Miss Elizabeth on the floor. As Savage comes out after the Nature Boy, Flair hides behind Elizabeth. And as Savage goes after Flair, Woman turns heel and chokes Savage from behind with her nylons. So we finally get what what we suspected all along, a woman heel turn. Woman as a baby face just really wasn't cutting it. She really was just, there is a prop, and now we see why. Woman turns heel she attacks randy savage from behind it was all set up to begin with and macho man will get the win by disqualification here in eight minutes and 17 seconds tell me what you thought about benoit's performance here with randy savage did it live up to your expectation and the woman heel turn uh the match was good uh benoit dominated my first note was on paper this should be a really good match but it's wcw and you don't know what kind of shenanigans you're gonna get when it comes to wcw right uh, i think it was the last was Last episode of the Grenade, we probably expected another good match with Savage and the Giant. We didn't even get one, so very good point there. <laughs> I, I think uh, you mean on the Warfare show, you said Grenade. Sorry, brother. But um, <laughs> no, I think my biggest issue is Savage just won the belt back. He didn't even get the win. Like I, he came off the top with the elbow, and then everybody just is like on the back of the neck after he ate the concrete. Right. I, f- I feel like it was pretty clear that Benoit took himself out, and the elbow was extra. So it didn't like if it wasn't it wouldn't have been like if Macho was burying him, so to speak, if he went in there and just dropped the elbow and pinned him. Benoit took himself out. You could always play it that way to kind of keep him relevant and strong. But they didn't. Not even only give him not that. only that, it was like almost I, immediate. I, I want to add to that real quick before you go on. 
I agree with you, and I didn't even think about this before. I think by doing the disqualification, it hurt Benoit more than it helped him. Because had Benoit taken that splat out there and dropped, got the elbow and got pinned, at least he gave it his all. He busted his ass, and you can respect and appreciate him. And here he's forgotten because this turns into an angle. So that entire match, everything Benoit just went through, it's it's switched over to Ric Flair and woman and everything here. But yeah, very very valid yeah. point there. And like I said, Macho just won the belt, so and I he doesn't get wins very often. Um, we'll see that going forward. I think before all leading up to when he loses the belt again. So that was that part bothered me. The angle was fine. I didn't mind it. Woman definitely needed to turn. She was doing nothing, getting overshadowed by Liz and pretty much everybody else. Really, all it was there for was just Heenan saying, "Hey, there's Woman," and that was it. Nobody really did anything else to it. I felt like Savage should have got the pin. I think both guys would have benefited from that. Yeah, so it was all proves to be a setup here as Flair uh, has woman turn, joins Ric Flair, and then Arn Anderson's out within seconds to aid Ric Flair in a double-team attack on Randy Savage on the floor while woman laughs that evil woman laugh, <laughs> just the same kind of laugh she gave Rick Steiner back in 1989. So woman doing it again, turning again on her man, so to speak. Uh, no, no shocker there. What obviously will be further shocked at the Super Bowl pay-per-view with what ha- happens next in that whole triangle of, of nonsense going on between Flair and Savage and the ladies and everything. But as the horsemen are doing a number on Randy Savage, here comes old asshole. Or as my grandfather used to refer to him, here comes old Hulky, as he said. With Hulk Hogan to the ring with a steel chair in hand. Hogan just, he's like Hacksaw Duggan with the with the 2 by 40 more. It's every time you see the Hulkster, he has a chair now, it seems. Arn walks right into a chair shot just to make sure he can get Hulk Hogan to get over here. And Elizabeth and Hulk Hogan wind up checking on the Macho Man as the horseman bail out of the ring. So Hulk Hogan had to get himself inserted right into this one already. Here we go. Well, of course. That's what he does. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense here. I'm not, I wasn't offended. And he actually got a decent pop coming out compared to what he's been getting uh, lately. So uh, the chair gimmick seems to be working, at least initially, for him. So... Well, he's been watching Kudos a little ECW, like or somebody's chance. been showing him a little ECW. Hey, if you just keep hitting people with chairs and it makes a sound, you'll stay over. Or at least the chair will be over. Nobody will know you're not over. And that's basically Hogan's uh, following that right now, that line of thought, I, I would imagine. And it's promo time as Gene Okerlund. I thought this was pretty pathetic. Ho- Savage is laying there acting like as if he's dying as Hogan and Liz check over. Here comes Mean Gene trying to score a promo during this entire situation. Just seemed a little too much for me. Mean Gene going to fucking interview people while Savage is laying there half dead. Uh, And Hulk, of course, he starts talking his shit. And as Hulk's cutting the promo, Mean Gene tries to warn the Hulkster, look behind you, here comes Ric Flair. Elizabeth just kind of stands there. I don't think she really warned him. We'll get to that in a second. But the Nature Boy attacks Hogan from behind, bops him in that bad eye, and somehow... Gene was right there and couldn't manage to get the words out to tell Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair's behind you. Flair has done nothing but dominate Hulk Hogan and, and honestly, even Randy Savage since threatening to quit due to Hogan's booking. I feel like they're really throwing Ric Flair bones left and right right now to get him happy. It's not just, hey, I let you pin me one week. They're, they're throwing Ric Flair all, all sorts of incentives. Uh, that way, he's not back to disgruntled here in a couple weeks. At least that's the way it comes off to me. I don't know if you took it that way or not. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. Flair's getting the upper hand on everything. And I think he even does it at Super Bowl. I know we already watched that for our copious show, but um, he even got the upper hand there to a degree. So, I mean, he's doing, they're giving him everything he needs to keep him happy, I'm sure. How long it lasts, nobody knows. But uh, this was, I I will say Hogan, 
did tell Gene to hold on because Savage is hurt, and then right. Gene kind of pestered him into it, and so finally Hogan obliged. But yeah, it was okay. I mean, I guess it was a good way to kind of plant the seeds there for Liz. Um, I know Savage gets up and questions her, "Why didn't you tell Hogan?" Oh, that's um, that was classic. <laughs> that, why didn't you tell too. Hogan that Flair yeah. was there? So right. he did his part to plant those seeds. All in all, it was a really hot start to Nitro with the match and then this post-match stuff, and it seemed like it never stopped. Right, so, so Savage, or excuse me, Flair attacks Hogan. Hogan begins fighting him back when out comes the Giant, who takes the steel chair and whacks it across the back of the Hulkster, and he tries it again, but the Zodiac hits the ring, and the Zodiac blocks the Giant from taking a second chair shot. And then here comes Randy Savage immediately back as well. Savage was just dying moments ago, and here he comes back to make the save. And the heels run off, and Hogan once again does yet another blade job. Can you imagine if they allowed blade jobs during the peak of Hulkamania? How we would we would be looking at Hulk Hogan is like the way we look at Ric Flair, or Dusty Rhodes. Because if you remember when Hogan came back in the 2000s, when blood blood was allowed again, he was gigging left and right. So it feels like even here when he's pulling this here in Turner World, that had he had the car blanche to do so, Hogan would have been blading just about any time he had the opportunity. I could see it. He does like the blade, it seems like. He doesn't Red do it equals very often green. as far as, <laughs> I guess. Um, it's the old school mentality anyway. Yeah, I agree. Oh, I'm not against the, the doing the blade, but I here on Nitro in a run-in, I don't know. It just seems like he's, it's just, I'm, I'm coming in with the chair and, and I'm going to blade. Two things the fans will it's really a, appreciate. Well, it's an open wound. He hasn't given it time to heal because they keep going after it. So it Can makes you explain sense. to me how he gets hit in the eyeball, the actual eyeball? with a high heel shoe yet the injury seems to keep being opened up about two inches above the eyebrow a little weird wrestling <laughs> mean gene then interviews the macho man now that hogan's down it's time for me and gene to interview the macho man this time and this is what you were talking about oh savage gets aggressive immediately with miss elizabeth it's already starting they've been divorced for years and he hasn't seen her presumably in in quite a while and he's already right up in her face pointing fingers why didn't you try to warn him? It was very aggressive heel, savage WWF stuff here. I, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I, I can see why she does what she winds up doing. I can't really blame her. Gene tells Savage that Liz did try to warn Hulk Hogan. I didn't see it. I was watching. I wondered the same thing Savage was here. And, and now I'm glad what happens at Super Bowl happens at Super Bowl. Good for her. So Savage already treating Liz like this again, and obviously we see Hulk Hogan now the one that needs some help. So Hogan comes to the ring to help Savage, and now it's Savage who winds up helping Hulk Hogan as the uh, the entire opening segment finally concludes. Lots to pick apart there. It all started with Savage versus Benoit. Yeah, like I said, it, it didn't seem to stop, and it was pretty good. I, I, I enjoyed it. it. It wasn't. It was a lot of what we've been getting, but it was a little different. I don't necessarily know how it was different, but it, I wasn't offended by this like I was some of the other stuff. Because it may just be because Hogan and Savage were the ones getting beat up instead of Hogan just destroying 15 guys at once. I, I right. think that's what made this one a little bit more tolerable. I would agree with that. And we learned this week on WCW Saturday Night, action involving Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman and a tag team. The Giant will be there. Sting and Luger going to defend or at least wrestle. They're the WCW Tag Team Champions right now. VK Wall Street goes one-on-one -on -one with Sergeant Craig Pittman. What a match that was, I'm sure. And then Macho Man versus Chris Benoit, version two. They call it a rematch. Obviously, it's probably recorded prior to Nitro, so Nitro would technically be the rematch, but 
semantics. This is, as you said, wrestling, after all. And we go back to the ring. It's the match that Arn Anderson demanded last week. It's Anderson and Pillman teaming up to take on the Taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan and Hugh Morris. Morris cleans house on the horseman early on. Really odd to see because I guess both teams are technically heels. You need somebody to play that babyface spot, if you will, at the beginning of the match. And it's Hugh Morris here. Doesn't really get over with the fans. Pillman goes after the cameraman early on in the match as he takes a bump to the floor. And Eric Bischoff tells the producers that if Pillman goes into the camera again to take the cameras away from him. Just stay away from Brian Pillman. Don't even film him. Hard to do if he's in the match, Eric. I don't know what was going on here. Lots of, I wouldn't even want to say miscommunication because there wasn't a whole lot of sloppiness. It was just there. It wasn't very good. Even Arn Anderson, when he delivers the spine buster here to Hugh Morris, he doesn't even take the bump with it. Just kind of picks him up and drops him. I don't know what was going on in this match. The crowd was dying. A miserable death. It really fell apart here. I felt with the crowd anyway, as there's just kind of a lackluster match in general. Kevin Sullivan tags in and then we get a wild fight with Brian Pillman. They really bring it. And we've talked about this on both shows quite a bit. If you're selling a fight, then fight. Don't wrestle. And that's what Sullivan does here. Biting at Brian Pillman, tries to gouge his eyeball out. Classic Kevin Sullivan. If somebody knows how to fight, it's it's the taskmaster here. Arn Anderson winds up taking Kevin Sullivan out of the ring, up the aisle, and over to the curtains near the entranceway. Arn tries for a pile driver on the floor, the same thing he broke the neck of Paul Orndorff with. But someone sticks their arms out from the curtains with a broom and breaks a broomstick over the top of Arn Anderson's head. I don't know if you really paid attention to this. Morris backdrops Pillman on the floor, and Pillman's uh, back of his head just misses the steel steps by a matter of a couple inches. Even Bischoff points it out on commentary. It's a very dangerous spot to do where they were. Yeah, yeah, it was real close to the steps. <laughs> Could have been very bad. Meanwhile, back in the ring, it's Sullivan and Hugh Morris. They attack Brian Pillman when Kevin goes and gets a strap, causing another disqualification, two in a row here. This time, the horseman will pick up the win, seven minutes and 15 seconds. Hugh Morris busts out the No Laughing Matter moonsault as well for good measure. Meanwhile, post-match, Kevin Sullivan whips Pillman with the strap until Arn Anderson is finally back to ringside. And we're still wondering on commentary, and I am too, at this point when this was happening live, who hit Arn Anderson? I hadn't figured it out quite yet. And I felt overall yeah. this entire match was very slow. These guys did not gel well. It never clicked. Uh, good heat during the Pillman and Sullivan segment of the match, although it was very short and brief. Uh, the Arn Anderson and Broom segment, though, I think that was really where it ended for me. I, I was focused on that more so than everything that transpired after that spot. Yeah, I agree. I, I was trying to figure out who it was. I totally spot, forgot. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, no but well, that's fun because it's like you're watching it again for the first time. See, I remembered who yeah. it was. I, I just, I had to tra- you know, go back in time and remember, you know, being myself back then. And I was curious at that time. Of course, it doesn't take long for us to figure it out here. No, it doesn't. No, the only thing, yeah, this match was pretty terrible. Uh, Pillman and Sullivan worked well together just because that natural heat that they have. Um, yeah. Mongo gave an analogy referring to uh, Pillman as it's like giving a kid a loaded gun. Eventually they're going to pull the trigger uh, referring to Brian Pillman. Uh, I was like, that's a little dicey. Uh, 96 was something else. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, this was, uh, it was, it was rough. Arn didn't come to work. No, Sullivan that's, I don't know that we've ever seen that. Time. I've never, I don't know that I've ever seen that before in my life. Arn not coming to work, but that's an excellent analogy. Arn really just didn't come yeah. to work here tonight. No, he didn't, and Hugh Morris sucks, and Kevin Sullivan's way past his prime, so 
Um, but I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't mind Pillman and Sullivan. But right. other than that, it was kind of rough. We go to a commercial break, and as we come back, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorf invades the announce booth. He's still got that neck brace on, selling the spike pile driver on the concrete and the legitimate surgery. I'm not sure if he's had it yet or not, but it was legitimate. It wasn't from the pile driver. Obviously, they used the pile driver to play the storyline out. The funny thing about payback, says Orndorff, is you never know when it's going to happen. And that implication means that we all figure it out. It's Paul Orndorff who whacked Arn Anderson with the broom over the head just moments ago. The only issue I had with this is they basically crippled Paul Orndorff and, for lack of a better term, put him out of wrestling permanently, basically, as you'll find out moving forward. Meanwhile, he hits Arn Anderson with the broom, which is a great sight to see, but Arn got back up two minutes later and ran to the ring. So I don't know that I cared about I would like to see Arn at least be helped away. He didn't need to be crippled. But Arn Anderson's back up and fighting two minutes later. So I don't know that that was necessarily payback, but I did like the, the actual initial angle with Orndorff getting a little bit payback. Yeah, at least they didn't just, you know, do nothing with it. They tried to close it up or tie it up in a bow since it, it did something big like that happening. Uh, you got to finish it. You can't, even though he can't do anything, right. you still need to try and do something. And I think they did a decent enough job of doing that. So it is what it is. I mean, I can't, I don't know. That's probably the limit of what Paul Orndorff could do at the time. So Yeah, and I think the initial plan was they thought he would be able to recover and return to the ring and they'd be able to do something in the ring eventually. But the, the sad truth is Paul Orndorff never returned, at least not until that brief angle they do much later on that leads to another injury in the ring with, with Paul Orndorff, unfortunately. We move on with this show. It's Nature Boy Ric Flair to the ring, and he's already got woman accompanying him out there to ringside as he takes on Marcus Bagwell of the American Males. So all the horsemen wrestle on a single episode of Nitro. I think this is the first time we've ever seen that. It's during this match we learn on commentary that Randy Savage has taken Hulk Hogan to the hospital. No ambulance for the Hulkster. No no fancy treatment. Randy Savage has taken him there. He probably got there a lot faster with Randy Savage driving anyway. I feel like Savage driving would, would even beat out an ambulance making it to the hospital. Probably. <laughs> I wrote, it would be fun to, I wouldn't get in a car with Randy Savage but it would be fun to watch Randy Savage drive a car I, I'd kind of be interested in seeing that one day at least a wired macho man and I wrote oh my god Marcus Bagwell was supposed to fly out of the ring miss a cross body block attempt and go flying over the top rope to the floor when Ric Flair drops down but Bagwell screws it all up spins around and his back catches the top rope he just stands there for what feels like a second and then just does a backflip, kind of throws himself backwards over the top rope to the floor. It looked terrible. You better believe this is getting on Twitter. Rightfully so. It was bad. But it was terrible. I don't even know how to describe it. It's like he went for a crossbody, but he landed on his feet, turns around, his back's up against the ropes, and he kind of just acts like he took a clothesline, only nobody's near him, and does a backflip over the top rope to the floor. Just terrible. As the match goes on, woman distracts Jimmy Jett, the referee, while Ric Flair beats down Marcus on the outside. Back inside, Bagwell winds up press-slamming Ric Flair off the top rope and even lands a superplex on the Nature Boy for a two-count. But Bagwell tries for a slingshot splash back into the ring, and Flair gets his knees up, allowing Flair to take over and apply the figure-four leg lock for the win in seven minutes. The problem here is the Nature Boy refuses to release the hold and even pops the referee, Jimmy Jett, while he's got the hold locked on. And that leads to Randy Savage returning from the hospital. Boy, he, he does drive fast. Randy Savage returns from the hospital and chases Ric Flair off 
and tosses a referee for good measure as he chases the nature boy to the back. So my question here was, did Ric Flair really win because he refused to release the hold? He hit the referee, but the way they sell it is the win stands. Ric Flair does beat Bagwell by submission, but you have to wonder, you know, <laughs> based on some of Flair's antics, why the, why the, uh, it wasn't overturned. Yeah, I, I, usually those are the type of situations that, that overturn the match for you. Right. But I, I guess in this instance, I mean, it rules was don't matter. <laughs> well, I, I don't even know if that mattered. I, I think Flair gave Bagwell a lot of offense. I, I, I mean, thought he did, too. I thought he wanted he, Flair came out there wanting to have know. a good match, I thought. It was a good TV match. I don't know if he liked Bagwell or, or what. I know Bagwell's kind of been there a while, and I'm sure – Flair wanted to give him some because he hasn't really been given anything uh, lately. So it makes sense. But this was a decent match outside of those few missed spots that Bagwell had. I mean, it was it was pretty entertaining, I thought. Yeah, I mean, even if cool you go back in time and watch watch Flair squash matches, he always tries to give at least most guys something. He knows it just makes for a better match, a more entertaining match. He, even get, you know, he used to get shit all the time for doing the referee spots where he would shove the ref and have the ref shove him down. A lot of the former world champions hated that. You know, Flair had changed the game, so to speak, of the way the world champion worked. And uh, they weren't big fans of Flair selling for the ref, but these are things Ric Flair did, and I think he just came. He wanted to have a decent match. I thought it was a decent little TV match. Same here. At this point in the show, I wrote, where the hell are all the cruiserweights lately? It feels like they're MIA lately on these shows. They're, they're certainly not appearing every week like they were in the first several months of WCW Nitro anyway. Yeah, it's definitely weird not seeing them. It's it's unfortunate. It needs to break up the monotony of some of these old timers. Uh, you're not really a fresh new product when you got all the old guys carrying the torches for you, and that's fine. They can, but I would like to see you know the Alex Wrights, the Eddies, the Benoits, the the Malinkos, and those guys that kind of just get probably dumped on Saturday night or syndication, and you don't even see them. Right. They can really enhance your show and kind of separate uh, some of this stuff that gets very repetitive. So hopefully soon we get some more of that. It's main event time as WCW Tag Team Champions Sting and Lex Luger defend the titles against the Road Warriors. Of course, they promised to do so at the Clash of the Champions pay-per-view during a promo when the roadies just returned. The match starts off with Animal overpowering Sting, but soon it's Sting using his speed to be able to make a comeback. And then it's Lex and Hawk's turn as they both tag in. Hawk no-sells the Lex Luger pile driver. As the match continues on, Hawk stays in the ring. Stinger splash! to Road Warrior Hawk early on in the match, but Animal breaks up the Scorpion Deathlock attempt. Sting and Luger are on Animal as the power goes out in the arena. So a precursor to In Your House Beware of Dog here. It only goes out briefly for a couple of minutes, and as we cut back in, the guys are wisely using a front face lock to kill time and wait and bide for time and see what's going to happen here. So they slowed the match down. Wise move, at least for the short term. And finally, things pick back up. Hawk and Sting take the fight to the floor while Animal and Luger, the legal men in the ring, Animal no-sells a Luger suplex. And Animal comes back and hits his own power slam on the total package. When Jimmy Hart distracts Animal while Lex Luger takes a metal lifting weight that Hart brought to ringside. Luger winds up nailing Animal with the weight and getting the pin. About seven and a half minutes shown of an 11-minute match. So we, we lost power for three and a half minutes roughly there. Yeah, when they came back on, they were playing it up. They, they kind of joked around that somebody from up north came down and unplugged the power on them right. and all this stuff, like kind of kind of uh, insinuating things. And then somebody that, must have in their ear because it, they retracted yeah. it. 
Yeah, uh, we'll, that I actually have notes on that. We'll get into that next week. Very, very good catch there, though, Steve. Uh, yeah, Bischoff jokes that, you know, so, like you said, somebody up north must have come and pulled the plug on the show. Obviously, just a joke. But, hey, the, Bischoff, you know, so is the, uh, the billionaire Ted sketches. So it works both ways, I suppose. And as Luger and Sting got the win here, Luger excited as hell, jumping up and down, did more work celebrating than he did in the match, really. And Stinger, he doesn't look so happy, Steve. They continue to tell that story. He's tired of the cheating and things like that. So, uh, like I said, I've said this a hundred times on this show. I really, really like this angle. And they come, somehow continue to move it forward for a very long time. We're, what, in February of uh, Nitro? And it's been going on since October, before October. And it still seems fresh and cool. Uh, you just don't know which way it's going to go. Is Luger going to get to Sting? Is Sting going to get to Luger? Which way are we going? And, you could um, argue that it starts from the very beginning when they have to replace Vader with Luger in the fall brawl, and Savage tells Sting not to trust Luger. So, it, I mean, Luger's yeah. been questionable since the day he walked in the door, basically. Pretty much. And like I said, I don't know which way it's going, and you never really find out because of the NWO, <laughs> but, um, it kinda, which stinks because with this, you kind of want the payoff. By default, everybody just turns face while everybody, you know, the new guys are heel. Right, it's company loyalty type deal, but um, yeah, this is one of those ones that kind of get lost in the shuffle. You don't really know an answer or where where they're going with it. Mean Gene hits the ring to have a word with the Road Warriors. Hawk says he's not asking. The Road Warriors are demanding a match, a rematch, possibly with Sting and Luger. Should they retain the belts from Harlem Heat at Super Brawl, and if Heat wins the match, they want a tag title shot against the Harlem Heat. Basically, the roadies were screwed here. And they want a rematch for the tag titles. Mean Gene sells Animal's former back issues. Says, that couldn't have been good what happened to you out here, getting hit with the steel plate, if you will. And Animal sells that. And yeah, he's had back issues in the past. He's not making excuses. The roadies say Lex Luger must pay the price. And they will make sure they face Lex and Sting. So Hawk starts off saying they'll face either Sting and Lex or the Harlem Heat. But by the close of the promo, they basically vow to make sure that they're going to get their hands on Lex Luger again. Yeah, it was really good of Gene. I know we kind of crap on him because of his scheme Gene stuff. He did a great job here bringing up Animal's history with his back and things like that to really sell, okay, are you okay, that type of deal. So uh, this was a pretty solid promo, even though Hawk and Animal weren't necessarily on the same page. And for the first time, I think, since he's been with the company, the announcers sell Hulk Hogan at the hospital going into this Sunday Super Brawl pay-per-view. They question how his vision will be heading into the big match with the giant inside the steel cage. This might be the first time they're trying to get sympathy on the Hulkster since he's come to the company. He's just ran roughshod over, you know, 10 people at a time. Now, finally, he's the one in the hospital. I don't know that it's going to work, but at least they're trying. At least Hogan's trying to do something, something different. Yeah, this is probably the second time they got sympathy on him. I know when the butcher turned on him, they did the hospital angle and things like that, where he sounded his knee real bad. So I gotta, uh, I guess I uh, eliminated that from my my memory banks <laughs> for good I've reason. Seen, I've seen it, en- I've seen it enough. I, I watched it a lot. I got it on pay per view, so I watched it a ton. So I seen the angle and everything. But um, yeah, it's good. You shouldn't be shown as this dude that never gets hurt and things like that. It, it can only help in my eyes. So. Yeah, well, I pointed out, you know, that's that's how he played it in the WWF. He went for the sympathy angle on uh, several occasions, and here in WCW, I guess he just felt so worried about not being over to the degree he used to be that, you know, he decided he the sympathy was not a it was not the right time to to play the sympathetic character. 
he found out that was wrong. Segment of the night, Steve, was it the Macho Man taking on Chris Benoit and all the uh, interactions afterwards, the woman heel turn? Was it Flair and Bagwell with a solid TV match? Or was it the roadies taking on Sting and Lex Luger and the power outage? Uh, Savage and Benoit. It was a really good match. I, I didn't like the ending like we talked about. I just feel like he needs the win. He doesn't get any when he's the champion ever. So um, just give him one win at least. And, and like we mentioned, Benoit kind of took himself out, eliminated right. himself. So both guys would have looked strong after that. Uh, I thought the angle was good as well afterwards. But it should have been done after Savage won. And then the rest of the show was good. But there's just too much shenanigans as far as finishes go. Every finish had some sort of messed up like a DQ or Flair beating up the ref so you don't even really know who wins. And then you had the the plate to the back, the cheating. So it was nothing was clean. And it was just, I don't know, too much shenanigans for my liking. We're going to move over to WWF Monday Night Raw in a moment, but just some brief WWF news. We learned that Vader was scheduled for shoulder surgery on February 1st. Of course, you remember he's, he's been suspended. What's your, what's your uh, segment of the night? Oh, shit. Well, I was agreeing with you, so I sometimes I forget, Steve, whenever I'm in agreement with you, I don't remember to even announce mine because it's like I'm agreeing with you as you're talking. Uh, yeah, I think it was just the best match on the show. Nitro's either been good when, they, you know, when they've implemented the cruiserweight matches and things like that, or it's been really bad when we see like three segments of Hulk Hogan. Overall, I felt the show was okay. Like it was better. It was more good than bad is what I'm trying to say. That that tag match in the middle really took away from the show with, with the Taskmaster and Arn Anderson and everything like that. I did like the Orndorff angle, though. So I I can't really call that my segment of the night, though, that just that one spot with Paul Orndorff. So I had to go with the Savage match. It was probably the best, easily the best match on the card, I guess. And uh, yeah, it was just cool to see Savage in there with Chris Benoit, something different. And the woman heel turn, it adds, it, it tells the story moving forward, obviously. So easily my segment. Of the night as well. You threw me off. I got to scroll. Hold on. <laughs> All right, here we go. WWF news as we head into Monday Night Raw for this weekend or this week. It's Vader. Was Vader was scheduled for shoulder surgery on February 1st and is expected back in the ring by WrestleMania time. Of course, he'll show up early and do a spot at the end of your house pay-per-view in February. Vader, of course, being suspended from TV and storyline purposes so they can go get the shoulder surgery after the Royal Rumble. We learned that Billy Gunn of the WWF Tag Team Champion Smoking Guns had neck surgery for a disc problem over the weekend. He apparently injured his neck at the Royal Rumble Tag Team title match against the Body Donnas and is expected to be out of action for four to six weeks. This is why there's another WWF Tag Team title tournament upcoming. I feel like they did this twice, and both times it's because Billy Gunn suffered injuries. Of course, the other time it was a quote-unquote rodeo injury. <laughs> Lastly, this before definitely we, no rodeo injury. No, no. Uh, I'm gonna, you know, it makes me kind of want to go back to the match and see if I can kind of figure out where this might have happened. One final bit of note before we get to Raw: Rad Radford, aka Louis Spicoli, had a seizure. It may, it may have been something else. I don't know. But here it's reported as a seizure, and passed out on January 31st, and was in San Pedro, California hospital in critical condition most of the next day. At one point, he stopped breathing for between two and three minutes. Steve. It happened at about 11 p.m. on a Wednesday night, and he passed out in the pouring rain and laid unconscious until he was found at 6.30 a.m. by a neighbor who, was, who saw him passed out on the ground outside. He made a fairly remarkable recovery, says DeMeltz, because he was out of the hospital by Friday. So critical condition on Wednesday, out of the hospital by Friday is Louis Spicoli here, but isn't expected back in the ring for at least four to eight weeks 
and I don't remember, but I don't know that we see a whole lot more of Louis Spicoli here in the WWF. No, you definitely don't. I don't I don't recall seeing him much more. Kind of foreshadowing the things that come. I don't know if that's the right word, but No, I think so. <laughs> it's reported it's, as a seizure, uh, and I can't say it wasn't a seizure, Steve, but we both know what we're both thinking here. Yeah. We know where this one ends, unfortunately. Yeah, it's sad too. What a talent. I was a big fan of Louis Spicoli even when he would pop in as a job guy in the early nineties. Yeah. Same here. He had a he had a decent look. I he mean, always he was did a little yeah. chubby. Of course, and he, you he know he got he got himself over he down there in the AAA promotion as Madonna's boyfriend, as part of that Los Gringos mm-hmm. Locos group of Eddie Guerrero and Art Bar, Luis Spicoli, tremendous talent, and winds up getting this Rad Radford gimmick here in the WWF before moving to ECW and then later WCW, and obviously you know as you said the uh, ultimate demise of Mister Mucciolo. Yeah, quite the ride there. It's time for WWF Monday Night Raw for February 5th. This is taped back on January 22nd, the day after the Royal Rumble in Stockton, California. Civic Auditorium. We kick the show off. What a big match on paper. Nowadays, you see shit like this every week. Not with these guys, but you see the big names competing against one another on TV every week nowadays. It's no big deal. But back here, back then, Diesel and Shawn Michaels team up to take on the team of Yokozuna and the British Bulldog. Shawn Michaels, soon-to-be world champion. Diesel, a former world champion. Yokozuna, former two-time world champion. And Davey Boy Smith, he's been right up there in the main event since turning heel. This is a huge matchup on paper. Yeah, it doesn't get much bigger than this for 1996, early on anyway. Yeah, quite the lineup here. Last week, it was Yokozuna who accidentally cost the British Bulldog a match against Diesel. Then later in the same show, it was Owen Hart who accidentally cost his former tag team partner, Yokozuna, a match against Shawn Michaels. Continuity. Unlike WCW here, Steve, everything makes sense. As the faces clear the ring early, HBK dumps the bulldog to the floor, then Diesel catches Shawn and throws Shawn on top of Yokozuna to make Yoko take a bump to the floor. The heels outside early in the matchup. As the match goes on, Diesel tries to knock Yoko down, nailing him with several clotheslines until finally Diesel winds up in a Samoan drop. Very brave of Big Daddy Cool to take Yokozuna landing on top of him there with that Samoan drop. Very professional, though. Yoko did a good job with it. As the match goes on, the British Bulldog pulls down the top rope, and Shawn Michaels takes a bump out to the floor as the heels take over and get heat on HBK. Coming back from commercial break, Yokozuna misses a big splash, and Shawn finally manages to make the hot tag to Big Daddy Cool Diesel. And Diesel wipes out both heels all on his own. And then it's Shawn Michaels climbing onto the shoulders of Diesel, for a big giant splash, seven feet high, onto Yoko Zuna. As Sean makes the cover on Yoko, Bulldog runs in to make the save, but Sean moves out of the way, and the Bulldog winds up leg-dropping his own partner. Poor Yoko. <laughs> As everyone gets back to their feet, Yoko Zuna clears Diesel from the ring, but turns around right into a Shawn Michaels super kick, and Yoko takes the big bump to the floor, a la the Lex Express forearm to the head. Yoko gets countered out in 12 minutes. As Owen Hart and Davy Boy Smith are seen trying to pick Yoko up and get him back in the ring, no such luck, and it's a count-out victory for Diesel and Shawn Michaels here. What'd you think? Uh, it was a pretty solid match. I wasn't the commercials really helped it. I felt like kind of breaks it up a little bit. I know this was a taped show, right? Right. Even though like you didn't miss any action, just that little little break kind of helps it a little bit, so it doesn't necessarily drag. Right. Um, if that makes sense at all. Yeah, there was downtime with the nerve hold and things like that. So, yeah, Yoko Yoko did work pretty hard here, given what he's been able to do lately anyway. Yeah, 
So uh, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, really stiff competition between Savage and Benoit on this one. Like if he's one of those channel flippers, it'd be hard to turn the channel on either one of them. So right. if I had to guess, I was probably watching Raw. I don't remember, but I'm. I, if I had to guess, I was probably watching Raw. Yeah, in the early era, I definitely chose Raw over Nitro unless Nitro had something really compelling that I absolutely needed to see. I don't know if Savage and Benoit would have been that at that time period. With these names in the ring, all these big names, I know the match was just, you know, average. But, I mean, to see these guys in the ring with each other, that's not something we saw every week back then. No, definitely not. And you had the big angles at the end of the show last week to kind of, or the two matches last week to build this one up. So you was anticipating it. Yeah, we've been trained for years to to spot a turn coming, right? So they definitely set this up to make you want to watch this week. Yep, absolutely. Post-match, Jim Cornette argues with Yokozuna about taking the loss. Vince McMahon claims Cornette is verbally raping Yokozuna, probably a line you can't use in 2021. Jim Cornette begins poking his finger into the chest of Yokozuna, and that's all it takes. The big man has had enough. In between the Royal Rumble and here this week, Yoko attacks Cornette and starts beating him down in the corner. The crowd goes nuts until Bulldog and Owen Hart jump Yoko from behind. But Yoko fights them off as well and runs off the entire camp Cornette. What a way to get over the newly turned babyface, Yokozuna. So on one channel, woman is turning heel. And on this channel, it's Yoko turning babyface. And it was huge. I loved it. I was not a big Yoko heel fan growing up. They, you know, the matches weren't exactly exciting. And, you know, obviously later on, you respect some of his early work and things like that. But overall, I wasn't a big, you know, fan of the slow plotting nerve hold matches that Yoko gave us throughout, especially 94 and 95. Here, though, is immediately when he turned babyface, I was sold. I was backing Yokozuna. Yeah, I, I just think it's a, it's a real shame. And it's kind of fitting with the new Yoko documentary out there. Uh, I think the big takeaway from that that I can see, and they kind of mention it at the beginning, is everybody knows Yokozuna, but nobody knows the man behind Yokozuna. And um, I felt like if his weight was under control and he was 1993 Yoko instead of 1996 Yoko. Oh, my God. The sky's the limit. This would have been this would have been a massive, massive because just go listen to the crowd. He gets a massive pop. When he turns oh, I know him. how over he was with me because being as ignorant as I was as a teenager, I never really pinpointed uh, you know, his weight as being the reason why he slowed down. Uh, I never really pinpointed that it was hindering him here in the babyface turn. I was bought on the character and the story they're telling with Yokozuna here as the babyface and you know, have him being on top of the card you know, his entire run basically here in the company. So I was just sold. So when it just kind of went away, so fast, as fast as it does, I was upset. I'm like, why? Now, in hindsight, you can see why and you get why and you can't even really argue why. But here, man, I thought it was sky's the limit. It's like you said, had he been in a little better health. Yeah, I think, like I was saying, if if he had his weight under control when we had 93 Yoko with this, like the passion yeah. that he was mm-hmm. showing and just getting some more of the character, the on- the layers of the onion are peeling off. And like I said, the crowd popped huge for him shoving Cornette down and him finally sticking up for himself. He's been dealing with this for months now or weeks. He's had enough, and everybody can relate to that. And then I know the promos and things come up, and like he starts talking, and everybody's like, holy shit, Yoko's talking, and, and not saying just bonsai and, and stuff like that. So right. we would have been able to see that character, and 
I feel like we got cheated a little bit, and then it, it, it really sucks. It's just magnified and enhanced based off of that um, documentary. And if you guys have, if nobody's wife, you guys haven't watched it, I can't recommend it enough. It's one of the best documentaries that they have on the network right now. And um, you do get to know Yoko and what a great guy. Yeah, and tons of rare, never before seen footage uh, of not just Yokozuna, but just in general of Yoko's dark matches, his uh, tryout matches, some WrestleMania 9 footage, things like that. I swear they recorded everything with WrestleMania 9 because if you oh, watch yeah. the history of WrestleMania, it's all over there. I would love, like, yeah, they did the Lex Express. Lex Express, oh, I'm thinking the same just, thing, man. I'm thinking the same thing. My just, God. <laughs> just a single roll of all the footage, like, whatever. We're not going to edit this out. It's going to be five hours long. Who gives a shit? This is Lex Luger, Lex Express. And I think uh, I need that for WrestleMania 9 because, oh, my God. There's oh, a lot of people on that card that people don't remember and – this is before the mass exodus of all the the older talent that we grew up with. So yeah. that that has to be some tremendous stuff, man. As Raw rolls on, we get our second vignette from a man known as Mankind. Again, the camera focuses on the right side of Mankind, showing his dis, uh, disfigured ear, missing ear, basically. Of course, uh, Mick Foley lost the ear in Germany during a match with Vader as it got it stuck in the ropes, and then it ripped off and got lost somewhere between the match and post-match. Mankind informs us he's found a hardcore home, and he can finally have a nice day. Jerry Lawler calls it eerie, Steve. Nice pun, Lawler. Nice pun. And, you know, we'd seen so much of Cactus Jack and WCW immediately upon the first vignette. You knew who it was by the voice, though disguising that Cactus Jack-esque voice here of Mankind as he makes his way to the WWF very soon. It's back to the ring for another solid TV match. It's almost like they're competing purposely with Nit- or Nitro's competing purposely, I guess, because Raw was taped. Uh, they, they, it's almost like they know exactly what's happening on Raw. And they're, they're implementing the same exact thing over on Nitro because over on Nitro right now, we've probably got Flair versus Bagwell in a, a solid TV match. And that's what we get here when the one, two, three kid takes on Hakushi. And I didn't remember Hakushi being here post-Royal Rumble, but I guess he's got to finish out his contractual dates before going back to Japan. Hakushi, I, I noticed here, not over in the slightest, and it's no fault of his own, but the crowd is just dead for his offense, even the impressive offense, as the kid makes his way out to the ring, led to the ring by Ted DiBiase and that oversized baby bottle that he'll be pushing all the way to the in-your-house pay-per-view when he takes on Razor Ramon. Early on, Hakushi takes over, but the kid walks away as Hakushi tries a space-flying tiger drop. Hakushi in the middle of the cartwheel handspring when the kid decides he's just going to walk away. It almost felt like a shoot. I don't know if the kid knew it was coming. Hakushi tried to even change up the way he was angling the kid, but the kid just kept walking, so Hakushi stopped in his tracks there. As the match goes on, the kid sidesteps and dumps Hakushi to the floor and nails a somersault plancha to boot. The one, two, three kid now in control with some solid offense. Lots, mostly kicks. Lots of good kicks from the kid here, as Jim Ross would call it. Those educated feet of the one, two, three kid. Hakushi comes back, drop kicks the kid, and a dive to the floor on the outside. Off the top rope. Springboard plancha to the floor, but no noise, I wrote. Sad. How far down the card Hakushi has fallen. Not even really any oohs or ahs at this point. From the fans, that's how disengaged they are with the Hakushi character. Again, no fault of Hakushi's. Yeah, definitely not. Vince has no idea how to handle foreign talent uh, like him. 
You don't give him a gimmick. Just let him go out and work. He's going to get himself over with his work, and that's all he needs. He doesn't need anything else. Unless you want him in a major angle, which it's Vince McMahon. I know you don't. You might as well just leave him alone, and you have you a nice mid, lower to mid-card type talent. I know he's better than that, but that's probably the best that Vince could have gave him, and he ruined that by trying to stick him with Barry Horowitz and jobbing him out all the time. So, like you said, no fault of Hakushi. He's a hell of a talent. And we close out the match. Hakushi starts making the comeback, nails a diving shoulder block for a two count, and then a Hurricane Rana roll up. Another two count. Hakushi again goes to the top rope, but he gets crotched on the top turnbuckle, and the kid goes up for a double underhook superplex to pick up the win, the clean win, in just 10 minutes. Uh, you know, again, another solid match like the Flair Bag. I would classify this as a better match than Flair and Bagwell based on the uh, action itself, but. On both shows, a very solid match in the middle of the card. And I was really glad there was no Razor Ramon here chasing the kid around or causing issues. The kid, now that he's been moved back out of the tag team division with Sid and back into the single spot to wrestle Razor, he needed a win like this, just a solid, clean win to put over, you know, that he can actually probably, maybe beat Razor Ramon. Yeah, I agree. He, he needed that. Uh, he needed the win. Kind of like Macho on Nitro needed the win. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 you feel like this was that momentum builder that the kid needed. He kind of had the legs cut out from under him with Sid being out, and he really hasn't had much to do. So this was a really good match, and they're kind of going back to the well. Uh, I know these guys worked at SummerSlam 95 and things like that, so they knew it was a good match, and they put it out there. And, you know, also, like, L.A., California, they're all about, you know, AAA. I know they go to the sports arena and stuff like that, so... This is. I'm not saying this is Lucha Libre like, but it's it's pretty it's close with the high flying action and stuff like that. So maybe that's where they're going with this one. But um, like you said, Hakushi's just not over, and nobody looks at the kid like that yet. Anyway, it makes sense why this match is on the card. As the show continues, we get a pre-tape promo, or at least a uh, vignette type promo with Jim Cornette and Clarence Mason, who is back now. Mason orders an immediate reinstatement of Vader, or they will sue the WWF and Gorilla Monsoon, which takes us to a promo as Vince McMahon interviews Gorilla Monsoon by a satellite. Gorilla talks his injuries, uses these long technical terms I didn't write down here. I would expect nothing less from the Gorilla. I kind of chuckled as, my, as Gorilla, or Vince asks Gorilla what his injuries are, and Gorilla uses all these, these technical terms of the body. <laughs> <laughs> Like you said, I wouldn't expect anything less. No. I do know external occipital protuberance, but he didn't use that here. I was a little disappointed in that, Gorilla. In the meanwhile, Monsoon apologizes for his actions, but he will not apologize to Vader himself. Monsoon says he responded as the Gorilla and not as the president of the WWF. He thanks the fans who sent in all the cards. Yeah, thanks for all those merchandise catalogs going out too, WWF. Gorilla refuses to apologize to Vader, as I said, but the board of directors are the ones, and we've never heard the words board of directors in the WWF prior to this. It's up to the board to decide whether Vader is reinstated or not. I can't help but continue to point out he was suspended before the Gorilla Monsoon attack, not after. So a little bit of continuity issues there, but they're selling it as if this whole thing started, stemmed from Vader taking out the Gorilla. Vince McMahon asks the Gorilla, why did you choose Roddy Piper as the new president, the interim president of the WWF? Gorilla says, desperate times call for desperate measures, and he knew the hot rod could get the job done. What'd you think of this? 
It's pretty good. It was different seeing Gorilla in that light, you know, just being injured and just doing the interview type deal. You never really seen it before. Again, like we talked about, clearly, Yo Gorilla has some sort of connection to a lot of people. Sure. For whatever reason. So uh, this made perfect sense. He knows how to talk. He knows what to do. He knows what to say. He, he's not some young pup. He knows what he's doing. So right. he knew this was going to be well-received and well-done. So um, I liked it. It was cool seeing Gorilla like this because I know we talk about it on our watch-alongs, but like that best of WWF, I think it's 18, where Jesse, everybody wants to see Jesse work, and then they put it on there. Like We get asked more than anything to see this. So when you never see these guys like sell an injury or do an angle or anything like that to be able to see gorilla do an angle like this was really cool. And, um, I know we get more of that going forward with not necessarily wrestling type angles Physical, like this, right. but getting more, getting verbal. more involved with the talent. Yeah. Right, probably, like, like with like Austin, Austin and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, I like it. I'm glad we get this because people like me and you, we were too, too young to even think about seeing gorilla in the ring. I liked it. Well, I thought about seeing Gorilla in the ring. It just was never going to happen. I used to think all the time as a kid, because Gorilla always used to reference, you know, when he was in the ring, I, please come back. Please, I, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before. I marked out like crazy on one All-American when Gorilla Monsoon and Johnny Polo were hosting the show. And Killer Kowalski, I don't remember if he calls in or he shows up on the set, but he entices Gorilla into coming out of retirement with him to challenge the Quebecers for the tag team titles. I can't tell you how excited I got when I thought that might actually be a thing. That would have been bad. It would have been awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Just well, gorilla chops everywhere. I, and seeing gorilla do chops on the Quebecers. Yeah. But as far as a wrestling match goes, that would be a train wreck. <laughs> we continue with the show. So we saw that huge ass tag team match to kick off the show. And you said it can't really get any bigger than that. And then we get WWF champion Bret Hart defending against The Undertaker on the same show. Talk about stacking the box here this week. The Undertaker dominates the match early until Diesel arrives ringside. Taker is distracted while trying old school by Diesel, and that leaves Bret to yank Taker off the top rope. And as Bret takes over on the offense, Diesel joins commentary. We go through a commercial break, and The Undertaker back in control. He finally nails old school. Diesel has the shitty line of the night as he tries to make a joke. Diesel says, a cold day in hell? Diesel says, right now, it's minus 70 in hell. Uh, basically joking that hell has uh, frozen over and that Diesel can beat The Undertaker. The entire joke. That's what I'm doing with it. Anyway, did you, did you listen to Diesel on commentary? Not a good job this week. No, he didn't do a good job. <laughs> Diesel just comes to work when he wants to. He already has that figured out. <laughs> so sometimes In, he's good, sometimes he's bad. Yeah, this was one of those times when he was bad, to say the least. Yep. Taker tries for the tombstone, but Bret Hart's feet nail referee Tim White, and down goes Tim White. Bret Hart slides behind and tries a schoolboy on The Undertaker, but there's no referee. So Brett takes over. He works over the leg of The Undertaker until Diesel attacks Brett and rams him into the post. So as Diesel goes after Bret Hart, The Undertaker recovers and lays Diesel out, tosses him into the steel steps. But Diesel's right back up, and he takes out The Taker with a steel chair. And back in the ring, Diesel jackknifes The Undertaker. And The Undertaker tries to sit up, but he can't as Diesel taunts him. Come on, dead man, sit up. I thought that was fun. 
before Diesel lands a second jackknife. And now Diesel finally gets some booze from the fan. It took this here to finally get the fans to turn on Diesel and understand that a heel turn is being had here by Big Daddy Cool. And Tim White, through this entire thing, that boot from Bret Hart has killed him. Tim White's still dead and motionless on the mat for several minutes now. As we go into commercial break, as Diesel leaves ringside, upon returning from commercial, we see just seconds after we head to the break, Bret Hart attacked Diesel in the aisle during the commercial, and we're told that The Undertaker chased after Diesel as well during the break, so the match basically goes to a no contest during the commercial. Match went about 12 minutes, the same length as the tag match, to open the show. Yeah, this match was boring. Bret and Undertaker just don't work for me. No. Not in this role where they're both faces, I think. Their SummerSlam 97 match is pretty solid, as far as I remember, uh, with Sean as ref. It, it was a lot better than these two that they had. I just don't think, they just don't work well together. And by the time 97 rolls around, Taker is kind of, he's been through Mankind Wars. So um, he's kind of loosened things up a little bit as far as the gimmick goes and can work a little bit faster and stuff like that. And for the matches and during commercial, you don't get anything, that's kind of, Kind of shitty. I didn't like that aspect of it, but um, for the most part, yeah. This whole main event was a stinker. Yeah, you have to wonder, at least to some degree, if it's just about Undertaker not being able to do everything he can actually do here. He's still playing the character, and he's coming into his own. He's starting to pick up a little more offense. Not really his fault. I know he used to hate that. He, he says, I could imagine being uh, relegated to only being able to do certain things when you're capable of doing so much more. But I agree with you. Just another bad match, much like the Royal Rumble match, only a lot shorter, thank God. Yeah, thank God for that. And we close out Raw with Billionaire Ted's press conference, part two. Vince McMahon says, despite the threat of legal action from Turner, we're going to get it. It's more Billionaire Ted. We learn that Billionaire Ted has lost millions, but he says he's having fun. He calls WCW a plaything. So it's Ted Turner's toy. Turner is then asked, how will he treat Time Warner stockholders when the merger goes through? Will he continue to throw away the money? Ted Turner claims he's entitled to a plaything, damn it. And here's a direct quote apparently Ted Turner had made in recent weeks. They put it over repeatedly throughout the show. Jerry Lawler kept asking Vince, is this really a direct quote that Ted Turner said? Vince McMahon had to keep saying, yes, yes it is. And they wanted to get that over before the vignette airs. As a direct quote from Ted Turner, he says, he wants money and power. So that when he dies and sees his dad again, he can say, Daddy, kiss this. And he slaps his ass. I wrote, ah, billionaires. Their minds are something else, Steve. <laughs> yeah, they definitely are. I, I've, I've lost um, interest. My care meter for these, my, my care <laughs> meter for these are just in the toilet, uh, right along with these little jokes and uh, I'll flush it for you, Steve. Courtesy flush. Yeah, and the main event of this show. So, um, uh, like I said, when they got out of the boardroom, this stuff fell apart for me. I get what they're trying to do. It makes sense. I mean, they took it one step further uh, as well, which I'm sure you're about to get to. So, Yeah, they actually close out the show with a clip of an ad that Vince McMahon has tried to put in several big newspapers. Though many major papers refuse to print it, says McMahon, the WWF takes out a newspaper ad. Warning Time Warner stockholders to beware. Ted Turner has lost $40 million of their money to WCW in a personal vendetta against the World Wrestling Federation. 
Vince then questions, where are these losses reported in Turner Financial Statements? Things will change with the merger, or will they? Uh, if there's one thing I've learned with wrestling, it's, it's at this point, it's just basically don't go public. We saw what happened to Ted Turner when he merged with Time Warner. Eventually, WCW was no more. And then Vince McMahon goes public. Obviously, he's making a fortune right now. I don't know if that has a lot to do with the stockholders, but you know they have a lot of say, and they've had to really calm down on a lot of things that might have actually helped the product. So if I was running a company, I don't think I'd go public or, or merge with these companies that are public companies. But so is Ted Turner here, and that is what it is. We know the story, the end story. It will actually culminate at the end of the Money Warfare, the Battles Within, our final episode, I'd imagine. Uh, this is when I realized back then as a teenager, This is, I think this right here, this ad, uh, the desperation of posting this ad and putting it on the TV show was when I realized how much trouble the WWF was really in. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, it makes sense. And um you just never seen this before. It's like, wow, yeah, <laughs> they're really going at it. And Vince is ruthless. Like Bischoff's kind of throwing jokes. Yeah, I can see giving away results. Uh, we know how that can turn out. Like that can either be a good thing or a bad thing for you. To, and to be honest with you, I didn't even remember Bischoff doing it from like when I was a kid. I didn't really pay attention much to what he was saying. So I didn't even realize that he was giving away results and things like oh. that But until later on. So like that never really stuck out to me as a thing. Like, oh, wow, he did that. That's crazy. Uh, later on in life when I figured it out. But um, now like seeing this, like you can really tell Vince was, like you said, desperate times call for des desperate measures. And he's doing everything he can to get the uh, the sympathy and uh, the people on his side. Like, how can you support that company when they're trying to take me out of business and stop me from making my money? Just ruthless, ruthless, ruthless. Yeah, actually, uh, way back when, when this actually, the week this aired, I remember that weekend uh, listening to a call-in show where the uh, the host was uh, discussing mergers and monopolies and things of that nature, and I had to call in and read this to him, this ad, because it just it felt you know the right timing, and this guy was clearly not a fan of, of billionaires or Ted Turner, so he had a lot to say and explain. So it, it opened my eyes even more as to what was going on between the two companies at the time. I don't think the guy had any fan, was no fan of wrestling, but it was timely and it you know, really helped me to uh, get a little more, gauge a little more interest and in, uh, uh, information on how the whole thing was you know, being played out uh, in, in a business standpoint. Segment of the night, Steve, was it the Kid and Hakushi, the tag match with HBK and Diesel and Yoko turning babyface on the Bulldog? Or was it Brett versus The Undertaker, which you've already pretty much flushed that idea? No, it's definitely not that. Uh, initially, I had the kid in Hakushi, but I wanted to change it to uh, I, I like the tag match to open and then the Yoko uh, face turn. Uh, I'm probably swayed by the documentary. I can't give that enough credit. Uh, it just makes me really appreciate Yoko more. And I, even in my notes, I was like the passion he showed. He could have been huge. He could have been a massive baby face. I don't know how long it would have lasted, but if he was in better shape, man, just I don't know. Like I said, I don't know how long he could have been to where he was at that tip top level based off of this turn but man i would have loved to have seen it yeah i mean he was he after years of showing no personality no charisma no fault of his own his, his character didn't call for such thing you didn't need that that's really he's supposed to be a quiet uh you know man to just kind of sat there and destroyed people and to be given this one shot after being there so many years it was very impressive to see how well he did same thing with his first promo that he cuts at the in your house pay-per-view upcoming so uh, i agree with you yeah, my segment of the night was the Yokozuna face turn. I thought the Hakushi match lacked heat from the fans. 
It wasn't the fault of the guys in the ring. They did a great job. But that Yoko face turn really cemented it for me uh, after the, the solid little tag match. You got what you expected out of the four guys in it. So uh, it wasn't bad. I, I agree with you. One final note on the show. I do like that Vince McMahon, at least at this point, is still sticking to the WWF booking, the long-term booking, so to speak. Win or lose in the ratings. Uh, when they can afford to throw the big matches out there like they do this week, when it makes sense, they do. But they don't, you know, they don't stay away from that forever. But for right now, they're doing a great job with it. Whereas Nitro is just a dumpster fire booking-wise. Just hot-shotting shit week to week. You never really know what, who, what, when, why, or where until you get there with the WCW. They're just looking for ratings. And Vince is trying to stay afloat, stay atop, but not really abandoning the actual product just yet. Best way I can put it. Yeah. And it calls for a more fluid and better show, to be honest with you. Raw, no matter if the action's bad, that's one thing. But at least it makes sense yep. booking-wise, and it, it's not hard to follow. It, you may get shit matches. Uh, that's a given. Every show has them, uh, no matter the promotion. Every single one of them have them. But the continuity, the progression from one week to another, they use. They know how to run a, a weekly show, and they've done it. This is their third year now, fourth year. They know what they're doing, and I'm glad they haven't abandoned ship and panic because they've been getting beat quite a bit. But you got to see, you're seeing what you're going against. Nitro's just like you said, it's the dumpster fire. They're throwing everything out the window, and we've complained about it that we see. We're tired of seeing Macho and Flair. We're tired of seeing Flair and Hogan Flair the and same Sting. matches over and over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like it's like I'm done with it. I I don't even care to see it ever again in my life, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's um, it's sad <laughs> that we're giving these first time matches, these dream matches at times on Nitro, and they really don't deliver because there's really no thought put into them. Like Hogan and Sting, for instance, or the, yeah. the Hogan and Luger match, a week two of Nitro. It just uh, well, I don't know, man. I like just follow up here for the Bret and Undertaker. Yeah, we just seen it at Royal Rumble, but it makes sense. Uh, you know, Yo Taker got screwed. Brett Rumble, promised so them a title rematch. Match. Yeah, Brett. And Brett, we got it. Whether yeah. it's good or bad doesn't matter. At least there's some meaning behind it, and it right. makes sense, and yeah. you're intrigued to see it. And they use that to it. tell stories moving forward as well, between all three men. Exactly. exactly. And... The ratings are in. The February 5th edition of WCW Monday Nitro surprisingly wins. In the Monday Night Ratings battle this week, doing a 2.9 rating and a 4.0 share to WWF's 2.7 rating and 3.7 share. So the ratings are still remaining close, but Nitro gets it again, and I'm actually shocked this week, given everything that was thrown out there on Monday Night Raw, the, the tag match and the world title match. I, I can't believe it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I'm surprised by that as well, because they had, you know, they built the tag match the week prior, and then... The Undertaker match, they hyped it last week as well as, um, you know, coming out of Royal Rumble. So the match made sense, and you'd like to think it's one that people want to see. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised about it. It's not like a huge loss, but no, if you're Vince, just, you have to be a little bit uh, disappointed. Like, man. Vince just threw all I of his top him. stars out here on one show. and this six, is, you know, six top guys on one show, and we still lost. What the hell do we do? Like, that's how I would feel. The real winner here, Steve, for you. Uh, Nitro clearly wins in the ratings. Who wins for you? This one was closer than what it has been because there's really 
to be honest with you, I didn't find anything wrong with either show. Well, um, that tag match on Nitro. The tag match on Nitro and then the main event on Raw uh, kind of dragged. But right. I'm going to go with Raw. I, I just, like, that opening 15 minutes was good on both sides. But just seeing their six biggest stars in the ring or four of their biggest stars, and then you had the turn uh, with Yoko was cool. I still remember it. Because, I mean, like yeah. you said, he was so quiet. And then you just seem all that fire and passion that he had when I was a kid. I was like, man, Yoko's pissed. And uh, it, still, it still resonates with me. I'd have to wonder was, how scared I would have been of Yoko as a heel. If he'd had that fire as a heel, I would have been, oh, this guy, this guy can't even be beat. <laughs> so yeah, him turning babyface and doing that, too, it, was, but... it was scary. It was almost like a lion roaring when, they, when the Owen and Davey boy take off out of the ring when Yoko goes, goes bonkers, goes wild. I mean, it's the way it was to be like, holy yeah. shit, let's get the hell away from this guy. He, he just Pretty looked like much. a, I mean, I want to call him, he looks like a star, but he's already a star. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I just felt like there's way too much going on during Nitro with the non-finishes and yeah. run-ins and angles. And it's just, your brain hurts uh, just trying to process all of it after an end of a Nitro. I mean, there's so much you have to process and. And to be honest with you, you can watch these shows numerous times and you you still don't see stuff or you can't remember things because so much shit happens. Like you're trying to process one thing, then the next thing, here comes another one. So um, it makes your head hurt a little bit and it's just, that's just nitro. We move on to the weekend, the Super Brawl pay-per-view taking place February 11th, Super Brawl 6 here. Available now on patreon.com slash WrestleCopia as part of our all-access tier, the $5 tier. Featuring the entire watch long series that includes all of the pay per views during the Monday Night War era. Super Brawl 6 up now. Go subscribe. Cancel at any time, but I don't think you will. As Super Brawl gets going, I put a note in here. Uh, Demeltz notes that Pat Patterson and longtime friend Louis Dundero were at this show. I don't know if they were in the crowd, if they somehow made a way backstage. I can't imagine during this war. Seems odd that Patterson's here at this show. I'm sure he's uh, doing a little uh, research. <laughs> Probably. We have a live main event, which also is part of our Patreon show. Not only did we do the pay-per-view, Steve, we also did the match of the watch-along for the matches on the WCW main event, the live main event prior to the pay-per-view, which saw the roadies over Dick Slater and Bunkhouse Buck, Hugh Morris over Chris Canyon, Big Bubba and VK Wall Street over Joey Maggs and Craig Pittman, managed by Teddy Long. Boy, Long's fallen down a long way since Doom and the Skyscrapers. (laughs) And Hacksaw Jim, <laughs> Hacksaw Jim Duggan goes to a double disqualification or a no contest. Take your pick as he takes on the debuting Loch Ness, who simply beats the living tar out of Jim Duggan. And we move on to the pay-per-view, the Nasty Boys. A little bit of re- revenge here. I want to call it revenge, but I think they beat the shit out of the public enemy at the Clash as well. But the Nasty Boys get a surprising win here over public enemy in a street fight in seven minutes, 49 seconds. Can't believe they have the enemy doing the job. Already TV champion Johnny B. Bad with Kimberly in his corner over Diamond Dallas Page in 14 minutes, 59 seconds. Johnny B. Bad wins back what's left of Kimberly's bingo money, $6.6 million. Sure. Tag team champions Sting and Luger over Harlem Heat after the roadies interfere in 11 minutes, 49 seconds. Remember the roadies promised to make sure that they would fight Luger and Sting one more time. So they aid them in beating the Harlem Heat here. United States champion Conan. Defeats the one-man gang, 7 minutes, 27 seconds. And what's Demeltz calls, possibly match uh, worst match of the year candidate. I'd have to agree at this point. And we're only in February. It was pretty rough, for sure. 
Yeah, to say the least. I'm glad we don't have to watch it again. Respect match. Kevin Sullivan taking on Brian Pillman in a strap match. We'll actually come back to that one in a minute because I have some notes here. WCW Tag Team Champions Sting and Luger pulling double duty against the Roadies, who also pulled double duty after their match on the main event. The match goes to a double countout in 13 minutes and 56 seconds, setting up a a rematch at the Uncensored pay-per-view. And it's time for the double main event. It's Ric Flair with Woman in his corner over WCW Heavyweight Champion Macho Man Randy Savage with Miss Elizabeth in his corner when Elizabeth turns on the Macho Man. And Flair picks up the win and regains the WCW title in 18 minutes and 52 seconds. I felt here in real time back in 1996, the Pillman angle, which happened prior to this match, took away from the Liz heel turn. Everybody was still buzzing, at least I was at my house, still buzzing about what transpired with Brian Pillman just a segment or two ago. And then in the main event, oh, this was a rough one to get through, Steve, if you remember. It was steel cage match action with Hulk Hogan. Over the giant, the jolly green giant, as he takes a giant tumble off of the beanstalk as Hogan escapes the cage or gets the win. 15 minutes, 4 seconds. And that was the Super Brawl. And I want to go back to that strap match between Sullivan and Brian Pillman. It was dubbed a respect match in which the loser had to state they respected their opponent. DeMeltz writes in an excerpt, it was either the most highly calculated and hard to logically explain ruse in the recent history of professional wrestling or the end of Brian Pillman and WCW. During the week within the company, the majority viewpoint was that the incident between Pillman and Kevin Sullivan and the announcing by Eric Bischoff was not as planned. And now this is where I'm going to mention what happened. Just a minute or two into the match, Pillman gets in the ring. It looks like they're kind of shooting. As Pillman doesn't look to be cooperating with Sullivan, the referee looks confused. Out of nowhere, Pillman just takes the microphone and says, I respect you, Booker man. Of course, the term Booker would never been mentioned on TV before. That's kayfabe terminology you're not supposed to be using here. And Pillman, obviously, shoot working or work shooting, whatever you want to call it. But at the time, it seemed like a shoot to me, Steve. It was an insane angle. And it led to Pillman storming off and everybody looking confused. And then Arn Anderson forced to come out in dress clothes to wrestle Kevin Sullivan uh, to basically replace Brian Pillman. So, again, they added to that reality. We have to have a match get Arn out here, but he's not dressed because he doesn't know he's going to wrestle. In, in WWF world, they would have screwed it up because they would have had Arn in gear. But Arn comes out. He goes to wrestle Kevin Sullivan. That match goes about three minutes, 45 seconds before Ric Flair comes out and puts a stop to everything. Uh, what did you think uh, maybe back then or, or the first time you saw this? Um, what was your take on it then? What's your take on it watching it again? Good job or did you buy it? What was going on in your mind? I definitely didn't watch it live. I didn't get any WCW pay-per-views outside of a handful. Probably the worst ones in WCW history uh, for different reasons. <laughs> Starcade 94, Halloween Havoc 98, and Starcade 97. So, And I got World War Three 98, I think. So for some reason, I went back to the whale after watching Halloween Havoc 98. That's remarkable. Anyway, no, I, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> it was not expecting to hear that. Because I, I didn't I didn't read the Observer. I didn't really look into much history of the business back when I was a teenager, whatever, when I first had internet. The internet for wrestling news and stuff wasn't my big thing. My friend gave me a lot of information and stuff like that. We used to talk at like lunch and stuff. So I didn't know about this until I rented the tape. Probably I I doubt it was that year. It could have been. I don't remember when I first seen it, to be honest with you. But I never really processed it as like, oh, my God, this is this huge thing because I just didn't know any different. 
it was nothing like it didn't mean anything to me. Now that I'm older and I know what's going on and the importance of it, it it's crazy to think about uh, that they was able to work <laughs> these people and work everybody and do it all the time to where it was so bad, like they didn't even realize it was a work or not. So people are kind of on the fence with this Pillman stuff. They think it's genius. Some probably led to his demise. I don't know. I don't know where Pillman starts and, you know, whatever he ends. I don't know where the loose cannon starts and Pillman begins or whatever the case may be. Right. So um, that to me, this was just another one of those things. Like, it's just part of history, and it's uh, it's pretty crazy. It, it really is. Demelts goes on. He says, Pillman, who had in the last month become almost legendary for either erratic behavior or being in his wrestling character 24 hours a day or both, had frequently arrived late to all of the shows. On the Nitro prior to the clash in Las Vegas, Pillman disappeared, and several in WCW were apparently scared he was going to show up as a surprise on the live WWF Raw show in Stockton, California, not too far away. The next Nitro saw Pillman in a tag match with Anderson taking on Sullivan and Hugh Morris, we just covered that, have a stinker of a match due to what at least appeared to be a total lack of communication and had a few seconds of what appeared to be shooting between Sullivan and Pillman. Many in the company felt Pillman, who stormed out of Lakeland at Nitro after a backstage argument with Sullivan, was through with the company. However, he showed up late again the next day for the Universal Studios taping. The next day, while Bischoff was having a meeting with the wrestlers, Pillman mouthed off, and the two had words with Bischoff saying that Pillman was very lucky he was still employed and strongly hinted, as he had on television, that probably wouldn't be for very long. The rest of the week at the Disney tapings, Pillman was kept apart from all of the other wrestlers, supposedly because there was so much heat between himself and Booker Kevin Sullivan, and dressed in a different trailer altogether. At this point, there was genuine panic backstage. Jimmy Hart came out and said, what happened? And pulled in Arn Anderson, dressed in shorts and tennis shoes, to come into the ring at Super Brawl and replace Pillman as, and do a representation of a match, complete with almost as strange a finish as the previous match. As Of course, I mentioned Ric Flair comes in and stops the match. Backstage, Pillman and Bischoff got into an argument in front of everyone with swear words, and Pillman sarcastically telling Bischoff something to the effect of, Sorry about your 12-minute strap match. Then left the building with Chris Benoit. Sullivan came back after the match with Anderson looking for Pillman, who had already left. Pillman then flew home before the Nitro the next night in Tampa. And while there was no official word of him being fired, Bischoff did vaguely bring up what happened at the onset of Nitro, the, uh, that's the upcoming Nitro, and made a remark about Pillman being history and there only being three horsemen. Pillman was telling friends all week that he expected to be done with the company because when you have a big problem with the booker, you go to a new territory. Meltzer says if it was a work, it was the most elaborate one in recent memory, as few if any wrestlers knew. The referee in the ring had no idea, noticed Jimmy Jett, the referee, at least seeming to have no clue as, as to anything Pillman was doing during the entire minute he was in the ring. The announcers didn't know. And the production people in the back all flipped out and legitimately went into a panic when a planned 12-minute strap match ended in 59 seconds. Several things were implemented later in the show, such as Lex Luger taking forever to get into the ring, so that explains that, during the tag match with the Road Warriors, along with the Anderson scenario, to kill time because the show would be running short. Perhaps the work will be so elaborate that Pillman will be fired as an angle. Well, that's foreshadowing. Either that or he'll simply be fired. 
Clearly, if after all this, he isn't fired, it has to be a work because this is too many different things in a two-week period. But if it is a work, they'd have to fire him anyway to continue the work. So we're in new territory here, uncharted territory, and this Brian Pillman character is something else. <laughs> to say the least, it's excellent. I, to be honest with you, it's next-level thinking, and um, Brian Pillman is a true genius. <laughs> Because if he worked himself into this, I mean... They say there's a fine line between genius and insanity. Brian Pillman's really on that line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the best. It's hard to explain. Uh, It's hard to explain Brian Pillman. Like, unless you lived it, you don't really... I don't know, man. It's just... It's weird. It's like... I think at first, Bischoff was on board, and he was cool with it. Yeah, let's just work. And I know this is a problem that WCW had going forward when you know the guys come in is working the boys and that's something you never did you never wanted to work the boys because that's how you get all the heat and it seems like pillman just threw all regard out the window and said i don't give a shit i'll work all of you and um looking for that big payday i would think i mean if it's gonna get get over bigger than anything ever which had it continued had he stayed healthy and and mentally and physically i can't i can't imagine where this would have went yeah i can't either and if he didn't pull a coup on Bischoff and actually get himself released from his contract to be able to do what he wants, right? that's big time. I don't know if he's just trying to make up for his lack of ability in the ring. I, I don't know because he hasn't been very good in the ring. I mean, we're watching him on the grenade, and he's awesome. Like, in the ring, in ring talent, he's tremendous. Right. He can go. Now he's just bigger, and he doesn't really stick out. So I'm wondering if he's like, you know what? What I used to do to get myself over isn't working anymore. I got to come up with something, and this is what well, he did. He sure came and up with something, that's for sure. Holy shit. It'll never be done again. I don't care how many people try. It's never going to be believed. One more piece of news here in WCW World. Vince McMahon came out with guns a-blazing on all fronts in his no-holds-barred war with his opposition, which he claims is not WCW, but rather Ted Turner, the entire Turner empire. Among Vince McMahon's maneuvers over the past seven days were filing a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission claiming that Turner has been engaged in a systematic plan to destroy the WWF so it can achieve a monopoly over the wrestling industry. Jeez, Vince. Kettle? Black? Come on. Taking out quarter-page ads on both Wednesday and Thursday in the New York Times financial sections. We kind of touched on that at the end of Raw. Having attorney Jerry McDivitt send a letter to Eric Bischoff demanding an apology for Bischoff's televised insinuations and other uh, similar insinuations on the WCW hotline that Titan Sports may have been responsible for the power failure in Lakeland on the Nitro show last week. And also, Vince, writing a letter to Ted Turner complaining about WCW reinstituting blading and promising bloodbaths on the Super Brawl pay-per-view show. On the surface, it appears that some that McMahon's actions are coming off as desperation, I'll say, he has admitted, or at least said several times this past week, that he considers his company as fighting for its life right now, and that it isn't so much what he's worried about in the short term, but what's going to happen six months from now. McMahon claims the problem isn't the wrestling promotional war, but that Turner Empire is using its power and money to destroy the WWF. McMahon filed a complaint on February 8th with the pre-merger notification office, FTC's Bureau of Competition. The exact details of the complaint were not available as a press time says DeMeltz, says that Vince McMahon was vociferous in getting the word out about his complaints. At least initially, his actions have paid off in small results. Bischoff was forced, and we'll see that in a moment, 
by TBS lawyers to apologize on air during Nitro on February 12th for insinuating that WWF caused the power failure, claiming his remark wasn't meant seriously. And some people take things too seriously, trying to say they're just out there trying to have a little fun. Finally, Bischoff has also been put under a gag order against making any more comments either on television or in the media to respond to anything Vince McMahon has said until after the Time Warner merger goes through. Word is that Eric Bischoff is very frustrated by both turns of events as he had planned for a full-barrel verbal attack on WWF programming beginning on the February 12th Monday Nitro show. Your thoughts, Steve? Uh, (laughs) It's funny. It's just like two rich adults crying over spilled milk. Like, I, I get it. I mean, we're not the ones with risking losing the money or the business or anything like that. So it may be funny to us, but I, I'm sure living in the moment, this was not funny to them at all. Vince's livelihoods at stake. Business has been in the tank for probably two years to this point. You can probably even go back to 92, so like four or five years. Yeah, I mean, it's point. it's been a slow so decline like at least since 1991. Yeah. So the decline's just continued here, yeah. Yeah, it's just gotten way worse, probably 94, 95 area. Oh, yeah. um, the, 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 the decline to the toilet. So he's hemorrhaging money. He doesn't have, he can't afford it. Uh, they've been riding the Northeast and, you know, those areas most weeks. It's kind of weird to see him out in California because I know like during 94, they did stay up in the Northeast run. The, well, it was the know, day after the rumble. It was the day after the yeah. rumble. I think that they did that because they just happened to be there. Yeah. So, uh, Poughkeepsie and, you know, Buffalo and those places just riding New York, Pennsylvania and things like that. So, yeah. I get it from Vince's standpoint. Like he doesn't have Turner money. He has wrestling money, but he doesn't have Turner money. Right. He doesn't have a CNN siphoning or you know just making money for him. He doesn't have all these entities. The Braves or uh, yeah, everything. The the Braves, like yeah, like like he has nothing making him money outside of his wrestling business. So um, I get it. I get where he's coming from. I know Meltzer shits on him all the time, and and it's fine. You can. I get it. But at the same time. It's like David and Goliath for real, and um, it had to feel like insurmountable. I, they, they got all the money. I can't do anything there. Uh, they're kicking my ass in ratings. I can't really do anything there unless I totally overhaul my wrestling promotion or the way I run things. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, we gave them c- credit for not just throwing everything at the wall and hoping it sticks to get a rating. They're not doing that. They're trying to hold course and stay steady, but at some point, if you're losing the ratings and you're losing talent and you're losing everything, you got to do something. And right. um, this is just the start of it. These are those little things that nobody really talks about. Like, I don't know a lot of people that talk about all the shit that they actually did. Uh, Vince did to try to stop WCW's momentum. These and, Steve uh, are I the only battles imagine. within, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's that's what we're here for. And I can only imagine the full barrel assault that uh, Bischoff had planned. I, I could can't. only imagine. They were going to lay it in all night because Raw is not on TV, which to me, that'd be kind of stupid just because why are you spending <laughs> your whole one hour yeah, well, untested uh, yeah. talking about your, your opposition? So right. I can't remember. I think it was – I think I mentioned this before when I was reading how Bischoff got Nitro. Harvey Schiller was gung ho. You got to worry about yourself before. You, if you're worried about somebody else, you're not worrying about yourself. That that can that that holds true. Whether 
I know we kind of changed course a little bit and came on Bischoff's side and everything, but when you're not when you're not worried about the you know the dishes in your own home, you better you shouldn't be worried about somebody else's. I mean, that should be your primary focus, and I, I think that's where. Right. I don't want to get too long winded here, but I feel like a lot of the territory stuff and a lot of the when McMahon was you know going nationwide and everything, like everybody wanted to go nationwide instead of just doing their own thing. I think they wanted to get too big for their britches instead of just riding course and trying to be like Vince. I think if they two things could have happened. They could have just stayed course and be stay, remained territorial and probably still made money and stayed open, or they could all work together as one and go national. Instead, they just wanted to all do their own thing, and they, they kind of cut each other's legs out from under them, and Vince was just sitting back laughing because he was head and shoulders above everybody already. So um, it's kind of like what's going on here. WCW is doing what they can to take out Vince instead of just focusing on what they can do. And... Um, it works for a while, but obviously we all know how this story ends. And of course, the February 12th edition of Monday Night Raw is gone to the dogs, so to speak, as Vince used to like to say. Anyway, the Westminster Dog Show replaces Raw this week, so it will not air. So as you pointed out, WCW Monday Nitro all alone going up against no one or possibly. Well, I'll wait. I'll save it for the end. I think you're going to get a kick out of what I got here at the end of the show. Monday Nitro live in Tampa, Florida in front of 6,000 fans, but only 1,000 paid. They made a whopping $5,000 off the show. <laughs> so if you do the math, uh, it's about five bucks a ticket. As it was basically a given away show put together by Dr. Harvey Schiller, who you had just mentioned briefly a minute ago, and George Steinbrenner, that WCW went in knowing it was not going to be a moneymaker here. Tickets were given away at the local fair and at the sold-out St. Petersburg show the day before. And still nowhere near full here. Even with 6,000 fans giving away tickets, 5,000 tickets given away, or at least 5,000 people showed up. They gave away more tickets than this. They couldn't even give them away, so to speak here. And it's Florida, man. I've wrote this before. You're just not going to get the same amount of people at a Florida show that you are in some of the other cities with the the, uh, shittier weather. This sure ain't Eddie Graham's CWF. I mean, we're not booking these hot angles where we're going to, you know, stack the crowd in week after week after week. And they WCW seems to go to Florida quite often at this point with Nitro. Yeah, I wonder. It's kind of weird they're working with Steinbrenner when Ted owns the Braves and obviously he owns the Yankees. And Billionaires hang out, the Atlanta Braves. <laughs> we all know how the, the Braves sucked. And probably I think <laughs> they started the dynasty with, uh, <laughs> I guess, the Yan- with the Yankees. Uh, they, got, they got beat in 96. So definitely awkward. But I'm sure it's like a spring training type deal, and they probably work together. I know Heenan and George are pretty good friends, and right. they mentioned it on the show how good of friends they are. So it makes sense. George always enjoyed wrestling. Um, yeah, we've seen Steinbrenner in the crowd actually during this episode of Nitro as well. It remind me a lot of uh, Saturday Night Main Event from Tampa when the Red Rooster and Tito Santana <laughs> wrestle. <and laughs> what do you do with a guy George- like this? And fire him. Fire him. That's right. So uh, I think George is sitting in the same exact spot, to be honest with you. It's definitely possible. Maybe that's his favorite position to watch uh, wrestling. (laughs) (laughs) George is awesome. Show opens up with Pepe decked out in sunglasses, headphones, and a bandana. Not really sure what the gimmick is here this week. As we go to the ring, it's Macho Man kicking off the show again this week, but he's missing the title belt as he's lost it to Ric Flair the night before at Super Brawl. He's also minus woman and Miss Elizabeth as both have turned heel on him in the matter of the last seven days. This week, Macho Man taking on Hugh Morris, 
or as we see uh, clips, uh, images of the Savage and Flair match from Super Brawl where Flair regains the title for the 13th time. Macho Man, out to no fanfare. I don't mean the crowd wasn't behind him. I mean, he wasn't playing into the character. He was still pissed off from the night before. Comes out in a t-shirt instead of his normal pomp and circumstance with the hat and the jacket. It was just straight up t-shirt here from the Macho Man. As he slides in the ring, Hugh Morse attacks. But it's back and forth, in and out of the ring. Mongo talks about Macho working the crowd for the first time late in the match. Macho never really actually acknowledges the crowd until late in the match. And when he does, Mongo points out that he's just now working the crowd. I pointed out, it's dangerous to teach guys like Mongo this lingo, this wrestling lingo here, as you never know when they're going to use it. Hugh Morris misses no laughing matter. Moonsault and Macho Man drops not one, but two flying elbows to pick up the win in four minutes and 49 seconds. Tries for a third elbow. Post-match, Hugh Morris wisely rolls out of the ring. Yeah, this is a slow and plotty match. Kind of boring. Um, Imagine that. Common denominator. Two weeks in a row. Hugh Morris. Hugh Morris. Yes. Um, Savage was pissed. I I like what Savage did. Obviously, you don't want to come out and be all happy-go-lucky after you just got – you lost your woman – twice in a week and uh you lost your belt so um there's nothing to be happy about in this situation so him coming out with just his t-shirt on and going right at hugh morris made sense he always oh reliable i'm gonna drop multiple elbows when i'm when i'm pissed and that's what he did so solid uh performance by macho man the match just wasn't very good and we get a quick promo with savage post match he doesn't really want hugh morris he wants rick flair and we learn next week a return match for the Nation Board for the world title. You see what I mean about throwing shit away uh, a little over a week after the pay-per-view and Savage gets his return match for the title against the Nature Boy next week on Monday Nitro. Macho Man takes a moment to even greet a handicapped child on the way back to the dressing room. So Macho Man doing what he always does, being really cool with the kids. He was selling the character. He gets to the back end of the guardrail and he stops over and says hello to a, I think it was a kid in a wheelchair before he took off to the back. Yeah. So, Good good guy, the Macho Man, obviously, and we're selling the rematch with Ric Flair. And now Elizabeth's going to be in the corner. going to be the first time we ever see Savage across the ring from Miss Elizabeth. Yeah, that's going to be different. Yeah, real cool to see Macho uh, give it up to that kid. I know I can't remember. I, I don't remember who told it, who said it, but I know he before he died, that's what he did. He did that a lot. He would just go to the hospital and talk to kids who were sick and and things like that. Uh, he w- he may have been out of the limelight, so to speak, but he was he was in the community down in Sarasota and doing his thing. So um, yeah, at any time WWF wanted to say. toot their own horn on their on their um, charitable events, Macho Man was always involved with all of them. Yeah, and there's one. There's actually one on the Hidden Gems for Christmas where he's giving a speech to the kids, and it's sponsored by George Steinbrenner, of course. So I'm mean, there here is George. You know he enjoys wrestling. So, but yeah, Macho. One positive thing you can say about him uh, is definitely he took time for the kids, and that's what it's all about. It's promo time as Gene Okerlund in the aisle interviews Steve Grissom of WCW Motorsports. Of course, he's the driver of the WCW car. I have no idea why they used to do this, and it's it was so irritating. Just ate up time for absolutely not. I know WCW sponsored the car. You don't see other drivers getting promo time on other in other venues. Like there's all these cars out there, the Budweiser car, the SDP car, all these cars. These guys aren't out like cutting promos on, on the Budweiser uh, commercials. You know what I mean? I don't. I never understood this. And to get the point across, the crowd absolutely did not give a shit about this segment. 
spoiler, man. That's my segment of the night. You need to be nice. Oh. All right. Well, my segment of the night's coming up next. It's it's Loch Ness taking on Scotty Riggs. Could you imagine Scotty Riggs giving Loch Ness the clap? Oh dear God. Last week it was Bagwell and Ric Flair. <laughs> this week Riggs gets Loch Ness. You tell me who drew the short straw there. Mongo says if Ugly could kill, Loch Ness could be world champion. Oh, there may be some truth Great to line. that. Great Loch line. Ness doesn't sell a middle rope drop kick from Scotty Riggs, so Riggs to the top rope for a crossbody block, which the Loch Ness monster was supposed to catch him and drop him, but instead he just drops him. And then Loch Ness falls on top because, oh my God, he's just absolutely fucking terrible. This may be the end of, uh, the, this might have been when Hogan said, I'm not working that dude, brother. Because Loch Ness yeah. then drops two big elbows, just like the uh, Macho Man drops two elbows and gets the win on poor Scotty Riggs in a minute and 20 seconds. He was the plan for Hulk Hogan next. And then Hulk saw this and yeah, I'd say no thanks. Yeah, this had to be it. I mean, he looked okay against Duggan on main event before Super Brawl. He looked okay. I'm not saying he looked good. He looked fine. But man, he completely dropped Riggs coming off the top rope on that crossbody. Like, just dumped him. Yeah, and Hogan, not that Hogan's like coming off Hogan. the top rope on him, but you don't want that guy. You don't want to trust your livelihood in this guy's hands with these botches. He can't no. catch a 200 pound guy, 220, whatever Riggs was coming off the top rope. I mean, it was, it was terrible. And to yeah. let that guy, you're going to trust that guy to land on top of you. No, thanks. No, nah, there's no way. Like, even if he Hogan got picked up for a body slam, like, how do you know he can walk around with him or something like that? Even right. though Hogan can help him in that situation, I wouldn't trust it. And no. Hogan was smart and saying, hell no, giant, you go kill him. Promo time, Gene Okerlund with Miss Elizabeth, woman, and a stretcher. Elizabeth says, oh, man, and did you check out Liz here? I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to pull up my here for Miss Elizabeth because she's out there in that shiny leather vinyl-looking dress there, looking hot. Miss Elizabeth changing her character a little bit here. She says the Macho Man promised Ric Flair would leave on a gurney, a stretcher, last night. It took Liz and woman all night. But they kept the word, and then Ric Flair pops up in a suit and sunglasses underneath the sheet on the stretcher. They're basically implying they put Flair in the hospital, and it took all night, if you know what I mean. I don't think it really got over with the fans, but I got what Liz was trying to say. Ric Flair sits up from underneath. He's the 13 times champion now. Flair can't wait for the rematch next week for the Macho Man as he grabs the girls in his arms and struts on the aisleway. And we get a Miss Elizabeth's first true heel promo even though it's a bit of a shoot. She says for seven years she had to walk behind Randy Savage, sit in his corner, never open her mouth. She said she's happy she took half the money, she took half the property, and last night she finished taking it all by aiding Ric Flair and regaining the world title. And at this point, Liz seems to forget her lines as she goes blank. Ric Flair starts to cover for her, then she remembers them. Liz says she knows the belt means more than anything. To the macho man, Randy likes to live on the edge. Liz says he's over the edge. Ric Flair laughs, sounded like a shoot laugh. As uh, That's a bit of a shoot promo by Elizabeth here. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the woman promo when she first turned heel and had her first shot at it. At least it was recorded. This is live, so it's a little bit different. But it's believable. We can all go back and watch Savage and how he treated her and, and things like that. So we know what she's saying is true. We know how divorces end up. And uh, we all know Savage is living on the edge. So she was definitely speaking the truth here. 
I thought she did okay. If she just didn't forget in the middle, it would have been a lot better. But obviously, that's just nitpicking. She's not used to this. She has never done it very well. She's never been allowed to cut a promo. uh, (laughs) Yeah, so um, even in WWF, she's so timid and scared to even talk, even when it's her turn to talk. I know she played that character well. So, like, give it, here's your first chance. There's no restrictions. There's no nothing. You say whatever the hell you want. And um, <laughs> she probably wanted to say a lot more, and that's probably what the problem was. She probably wanted to say a lot more that could really damage Savage um, personally in, in a shoot, but I don't think <laughs> she had it in her to do that. So right. she kind of had to pick and choose what she was going to say. Yeah, I think I think they're amicable here. Obviously, Randy was played a part in bringing her in here, so I don't think there's like hard feelings necessarily either between the two. I mean, they're working together, obviously, as well moving forward. It's just that uh, yeah. I, I I also feel somebody wrote this for her to a degree. I mean, she's forgetting lines, so I think she was fed the entire thing. Whether she had work, uh, you know, input on it or not, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, she went from doing sound bites in the WWF to actually having to cut a promo here, so she tried. We move on. U.S. champion Conan taking on dangerous Devin Storm. It's Devin Storm's debut with the WCW. Early on, Devin Storm with the baseball slide, then grabs a chair and opens it up, sits it in the ring as he bounces off the ropes, jumps off the chair with a somersault plancha onto the floor on Conan, and then a running dropkick off the apron as well. It's clear very early in this match, Devin Storm copying the suicidal tendencies of Sabu here. As Storm places Conan seated in a chair on the floor, Devin then positions the ringside steps as he runs up the steps and tries for a flying Rana, but Conan counters and turns it into a powerbomb on the floor. Back in the ring, Conan tries a little Lucha Libre action with a Lucha arm drag, head scissors, and a somersault Rana. He then nails Devin Storm with a wheelbarrow suplex and some groundwork from both guys as they begin trading leg work on both as on both sides as they transition, slow things down so they can pick it back up again for the finish. Devin Storm tries an Arabian powerbomb to the outside of the floor, but Conan holds onto the ropes and rolls it into a Rana on the outside. Very slow motion, so it didn't get the pop. It, it could have gotten shitty on Conan's part there for not taking the move properly. Eric Bischoff, then, this is where he apologizes for implying that the WWF shut off the power last week. Says that the, the WWF takes things too seriously. Eric Bischoff is just trying to have a little fun. As we go to the finish of the match, Devin Storm tries a Hurricane Rana from the top rope, but Conan turns it into another powerbomb and straight into a jackknife pin to get the win in 5 minutes and 19 seconds. They did a lot in 5 minutes and 19 seconds. I was very impressed with Devin Storm's debut. Unfortunately, we really don't see him again until he returns during that crowbar era. Yeah, he, he <laughs> Sabu wannabe. This is their replacement for Sabu. A lot of the same sort of uh, offense. Yeah, there's a spot where he got powerbombed on the floor, and thankfully Conan was as strong as he was because he was about to drop him on his head or neck or something, but Conan was able to power him up and drop him in a way that was protective of him. Good thing, like I know you mentioned Conan doing shitty on that Hurricane type deal. But uh, at least it, I think a lot of that had to do with his strength and things. It just doesn't look as good when a big guy does it. It's kind of like a seven-foot center dunking in basketball. It's not as pretty as a six-four guy doing it. So sure. um, uh, just Conan is just too big to be doing some of that stuff to me anyway. But, yeah, this is a solid match. It, it was okay. They did a shit ton. They forced everything. It's kind of like the Jerry Lynn matches that we've seen early on in Nitro where they're like, okay, guys, you got five minutes. They're like, F it, I'm not telling the story. Let's just go out and do spots. And that's kind of what they did here. 
So yeah, I feel um, like they told Devin Storm sense. to go out there and get yourself over. I thought he did a really good job here. I don't think he looked bad whatsoever. He worked every spot he could into into those five minutes, and he doesn't seem to get the job. He'll pop up in uh, ECW before too long. Gets his ass kicked by Sabu, huh? Gets his ass kicked by Taz in his debut. <laughs> Even worse, yeah, well, arguably. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We finish the show. The main event this week is Hulk Hogan rocking that eye patch over that bad eye, taking on Arn Anderson, who's accompanied the ring by woman. This is where they showed George Steinbrenner in the crowd. Of course, he's probably not in the crowd for the duration of the show, but now that the Hulkster's out there, Steinbrenner's sitting there front and center ready to watch on as Hulk Hogan just dominates Arn Anderson and given the upcoming finish, wasn't really shocked here that Hulk just obliterated Arn for most of the matchup. Hogan winds up losing the eye patch early on and continues to take out Arn Anderson. Arn finally goes for the eye as Flair and Liz come ringside. So now Hogan has to contest with Arn in the ring while Liz, Woman, and Ric Flair all on the floor. Arn Anderson nails the big spine buster. And he gets the cover. One, two, but Hulk Hogan kicks out and it's the Hulk up, leading to the big boot. But rather than do the leg drop, Hulk begins to strut around the ring and piss Ric Flair off on the floor. And like I said, instead of the leg drop, Hulk locks Arn in the figure four leg lock, which pisses Flair off even more. He runs in the ring but gets inside cradled by the Hulkster while continuing the figure four on Arn Anderson. I wrote, how is this not a disqualification? I don't care if Hogan has Flair locked up in a cradle. Flair has interfered. He is in the ring. But the match goes on as Woman throws powder into Hogan's good eye. And then Liz hands off her boot to Arn Anderson, who nails Hogan with the boot and makes the cover. Arn Anderson pins Hulk Hogan. And Hulk Hogan gets pinned twice in three weeks on TV. Anderson gets the win here in nine minutes and 14 seconds. Yeah, this match was solid. The problem that I have is the finish. Like you said, where's the DQ? I mean, guys just running in and out. It's a a never-ending story of run-ins, cheap finishes, and non-decisive garbage. Like, it it just drives me nuts because at some point, somebody has to get a clean win and establish themselves, and nobody's getting that. The match was fine. Uh, I did put down here the notes like Arn Anderson seems like the only guy in the WCW that's not afraid to lay in some shots to Hogan. Right. Make him look believable and it makes it not so cartoony. <laughs> this makes it look more authentic and real. Like he nails him in the back with a forearm. That really sounds stiff that you just you're not hearing from anyone else that, are, that is in the ring with Hogan. You, you can hear the, the chops and stuff like that. Obviously, he's cool with taking those, but. As far as punches and forearms and knees and those sort of things, Arn's laying him in, and he seems to be the only guy doing it. So um, if that's what it takes, then that's fine with me. I, I can see this match again. But yeah. um, so the Hogan, finish just drives me nuts. Right. So Hogan, yeah, I did too. I didn't understand. I mean, that's what they wanted to do. I don't really know that it was necessary to even do it, other than Hogan had to get himself. Oh, I took, I took on both guys at the same time before I did the job. Of course, Hogan plays dead for the shot from the boot with Arn Anderson. But shortly thereafter, Hogan pops right up and clears the ring of both Arn and Flair. Macho Man out then to even the odds and even nails Ric Flair with a chair shot. Mongo with another line of the night this week. He says, it's one thing to screw over the Macho Man, but Elizabeth screwing over Hulk Hogan? That's no good. So so apparently you're at different level tier. Like, you can be a dick to one guy, but Hulk Hogan, no, 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 you can't do that. Hulk Hogan's more important than the (laughs) Macho Man. At least that's what Mongo was implying here. This week, as Ric Flair and Arn Anderson storm the announce area, 
running off Mongo and Eric Bischoff. It's Arn Flair, Liz, and Woman up in the announce area with Bobby Enon. Flair says they kicked Hogan's ass again this week. Said the word ass right there on TNT. Elizabeth really enjoying herself being a bad guy, it seems. She's never really been in this position to where she can be the bad guy. Even when she was with Macho Man, when he was a heel, she still had to play that that uh, quiet, uh, humble young lady hiding behind the Macho Man. Here she's got this, I felt like it was a legitimate shoot smile on her face. She's really enjoying Ric Flair's silly here, heel promo here as he's going irate, losing his mind again at the announce desk. Of course, the heels get run off by Hogan and Savage. As they they then invade the announce desk instead of cutting the promo in the ring, I was really impressed at how fast Gene Okerlund got from the ring to the announce desk to interview Hogan. And Heenan now runs off too as the baby faces take over the announce area. We learned next week, we already heard it's Savage taking on Flair in a rematch for the WCW title. And now Hogan wants a rematch with Arn Anderson as well. And they say the word Hilter Skelter three or four times to close out the show. <laughs> Yeah, uh, craziness, just crazy. At first, it's real cool seeing everybody like run to the announce table and run off the announcers, and usually those places are off limits, but it's getting overdone. I I, I feel like right. it seems like every other week they're in in this way. So, again, it's just like something that worked the first time that's cool, and now it's like let's overdo it and um, <laughs> let's just keep doing it, and it never stops being done, yeah. to be honest with you. But, uh, uh, from the first time somebody showed up at the announce desk, which it was, I don't remember who it was, the first person to do it. I said, well, that's the end of that. Sting? Sting yeah, I think it was Sting. I think it was Sting. I think it was Sting, and then, a lot, then Medusa. Um, then Conan. Then everybody could just do it after when, Conan did it. When you have Craig Pittman up there begging Mongo oh, and yeah. Heenan. That's right. manager like, at the announce table, it's like, who gives a shit anymore? That's right. Um, so, yeah, fun, fun ending. It was all right. Segment of the night, listening to Miss Elizabeth cut her first heel promo. Was it watching Loch Ness? Uh, perhaps Arn Anderson pinning the Hulkster? Or a pissed-off macho man early on the show with Hugh Morris? Of course, you said your segment of the night was really Steve Grissom, but I don't know. Are you sticking with that? Uh, <laughs> might as well. It's the least offensive thing. No, I'm just joking. Um, no, I'm going to go with pissed off Macho Man. I love it when he snaps because it, there's a truth, a little bit Step of Step into a Slim Jim. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, and, and I feel like the card was just kind of eh. It, it, lots of cluster finishes. And then my main takeaway from all this is, you know, Vince Russo gets a bad rap, and rightfully so, for, you know, the hot shot booking that makes right. no sense and is throwing yeah. everything out there. That's exactly what Eric Bischoff is doing. He's doing it before it's cool. It's brutal. It, it, it's the same five guys, four guys, week after week, doing the same stupid shit, just a different town, and it, it's old. It's already old, man. Yeah, my segment of the night was actually Arn Anderson pinning Hulk Hogan. I just enjoyed that so very much. I remember watching. I don't remember watching the one live where Flair pinned Hogan. I was probably watching Raw that night first, but obviously Raw wasn't on this week, and I remember this vividly. I said, oh, my God, Arn Anderson pinned Hulk Hogan. I popped for Arn Anderson there. And like you pointed out, Arn wasn't afraid to lay it in. So while it's a Hogan match, so it's never really good, it was okay. And I didn't think anything on here was very, you know, really good wrestling wise. So my hat's off to Arn Anderson being able to pin Hulk Hogan, at least for this week here. And of course, uh, I pointed out WWF Raw is gone to the dogs with the Westminster Dog Show. So the ratings are in for WCW Monday Nitro. The 
February 12th edition of Nitro with no competition from Raw and with its current product, as in both products, uh, the interest has been way up lately with Raw and Nitro. The show sets a record, no shocker there, doing a 3.7 rating and a 5.3 share. 5% of the people watching TV that night were watching WCW Nitro. Crazy. With the replay even doing a 1.3 rating and a 3.8 share. So 4% of America watching the replay of Nitro that night. Meanwhile, the funny thing about all of this, Steve, even though there was no Monday Night Raw, are you ready for this? Even though Nitro set its all-time record on February 12th with no Raw opposition, TNT actually lost the time slot to the USA Network, which did a phenomenal 3.9 for the Westminster Dog Show. That number ties the best number Raw did in its heyday. So Demelt's quick to point out that the Westminster Dog Show beats out Nitro and basically Raw as well. So you asked on the last episode of The Grenade, uh, you know, why, why wouldn't they you know, re-air Raw at a different time or work around this or whatever with the Westminster Dog Show? Clearly, it had its, uh, its interest, its fan base. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't get it. It's funny. But, but clearly. It's hilarious. So Nitro wins like in the yeah Nitro wins in the ratings, but it still loses to the USA Network at the same time. <laughs> yeah, my big takeaway from this is if they're pulling three point seven when they're unopposed, how much better off would both companies be if WCW chose a different night? Good question, but I ponder if they would have ever started drawing this rating had they not uh, ran up against Rock. Because I feel like a lot of them getting where they are right now is because people are already setting their TV to wrestling. They're, they're trained to know wrestling's on a Monday nights and now they have an opposition to turn tune to. I don't know if, if nitro started on a Wednesday, if it ever picks up to where it got. It's definitely possible. I can see that, that angle, but I think if, uh, if they're running the same stuff and that they've been doing, that's getting these ratings and they have it on a Tuesday or Wednesday and promoted the shit out of it initially, so you get the fan base, I think uh, it could have worked. And to be honest with you, I'd, I'd go as far as to say that there's a real chance that they could still be up and running, my guess, if they was able to establish themselves on their own day and own time um, instead of going head-to-head. Well, I think the booking essentially led to their downfall eventually as well. And I played a, a, a huge part in it anyway. Well, I agree with that, but I also I think if you're – when you're going head to head with somebody, right, and you're pulling in a one and a half or a two, and W and WWF's pulling in fours and fives, that's one thing. But when you're on your own show and you maybe you're pulling in a three and a half because you don't have to worry about what Night Raw's doing, is it really that bad? Yeah, it's a question we may never have the answer to, but it's a, a good point, certainly. Yeah. And yeah, I mean. Another two weeks. Is, nobody's going to turn it over. Right. <laughs> Especially with Nitro as bad as it was, nobody's going to turn it yeah. over. So it worked, exactly. worked both ways. Yeah. So this it's, it's <laughs> like, I'd be more inclined to watch some WCW 2000 if it was on like Wednesday and I didn't have to flip between Raw and Nitro. Who knows? Yeah, it's, it's some That's good points there. Yeah, it's, thing uh, to ponder. Yeah, it is uh, interesting to ponder. It's uh, very curious. I don't know. Maybe one day we'll see something like that happen and we'll have our answer. But for right now, we're stuck here in 1996 world on Monday Warfare programming. And we want to thank you guys for listening once again. We'll be back again with more February 1996, Steve. And we'll be building up to the In Your House February pay-per-view with Bret Hart taking on Diesel inside the steel cage. That should be fun. That'll be up and running 
on our Patreon account before too soon. That again is patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Steve, thanks for knocking out another one with me here as we talked all about two weeks of Nitro, one week of Raw, and a whole lot of Brian Pillman, and of course, the battles within. Yeah, it's been fun. I think we already seen the build up to In Your House. Since they missed this week, I think the pay-per-view is this coming Sunday, the 18th. It's the 18th because the Raw 19th opens up with uh, In Your House. Ooh, good call. Yeah, well, we'll be talking about the fallout from the In Your House pay-per-view then, I suppose, when we return here. <laughs> yes, we will. So Hope everybody's looking forward to it. Yeah, so thanks again, Steve. Really appreciate you being here doing another two weeks of the Monday Warfare show. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And thank you guys for continuing to turn tune in. I know we missed a week recently. There was a lot of stuff going on in both of our worlds that we really just couldn't control. But we're here. We're continuing to knock out the program. We hope you enjoy it. We hope you continue to enjoy. I'm your host, Ray Russell. Steve Ekstad, always a joy to have by my side and discuss all about the Monday Night War era. Steve, I'll talk to you soon again in the next edition of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. 